We will call this afternoon's work session to order. <clears throat> Welcome to our third budget work session of the FY24 budget cycle. This is Christian Dorsey, chair of the board presiding, and joined by members Katie Crystal, Matt DeFerranti, and Takis Carantonis. We expect Vice Chair Garvey shortly. Today we're going to hear presentations from our Department of Community Planning, Housing and Development, as well as our Department of Human Services, and we will spend uh, extensive time covering our housing program, which cross-cuts both departments, and we'll also hear from several representatives from advisory commissions who have uh, workflows that co-align with these departments. As always, there are gonna be opportunities for board members to engage in discussion and ask questions, and for those of you who are interested, all of the information about this year's operating budget proposal can be found at the budget and finance page at the county's website at arlingtonva.us. With that, kick us off, Mr. Schwartz. Thank you, I'm gonna turn it over to a person you may recognize from the note I sent to you on Friday afternoon from Manager Notes. Uh, a younger version was included in that photo, but here is the current version of Claude Williamson. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. Good afternoon, everyone. Yes, I am Claude Williamson. I'm the director of the Department of Community Planning, Housing and Development, and I'm here today to present the FY24 budget for CPHD. Just to remind the board, the mission of CPHD is to promote the improvement, conservation, and revitalization of Arlington's physical and social environment. The, the department's made up of six major divisions, including planning, which is overseen by our planning director, Anthony Fusarelli, housing with Ann Venezia as our housing director, the Neighborhood Services Division, led by Chikwe Njoku. Zoning is overseen by our Zoning Administrator, Arlova Vonham. Inspection Services with Chief Building Official, Shari Amiri, and Cynthia Hernan, who oversees our Business Operations Division, which includes HR, Budget, and Technology Services. Under the Director's Office, we also have the uh, Research and Strategic Initiatives Group, led by Jill Hunger, and our Communications and Engagement Team, led by Erica Moore. And I just want to thank them for their hard work this year and their leadership. Uh, and I also want to thank everyone in CPHD as well. Before getting into the budget uh, proposal, I'd like to share some of our department's major recent accomplishments since we last met back in March. As well as some key work, I also want to share some key work uh, items that will be coming forward this year. And I also want to recognize all the hard work of all the volunteers of our commissions and those from the larger Arlington community who participated in our processes. These efforts would not have been successful without their involvement. In terms of housing investment, we added 234 new committed affordable units to the rolls and the rehab and affordability extension of more than 450 CAFs. As part of our yearly inspections and with additional money that was given to us in FY23, we're inspecting an additional 2,000 CAF units, which will be completed by this spring. For planning and our growth management efforts, the County Board approved four site plans, which generated more than 152 million in community benefits. We expect another 25 million coming forward through three additional site plans before the end of the fiscal year. We also completed three major long-range planning efforts by adopting the Pentagon City Sector Plan, the Clarendon Sector Plan, and the Courthouse West Special GLUP Study. We have been investing in our neighborhoods as well through the Arlington Neighborhoods Program by completing four street and intersection projects totaling over $2.9 million. We also launched the Historic Preservation Fund, which is a pilot grant program soliciting HP projects that range from education and awareness programs to bricks and mortar projects. 
And for our permitting and inspection efforts, we issued approximately 12,000 permits and completed close to 50,000 inspections, totaling more than 14 million square feet of construction. And finally, we added building and trade permits to our, to our permit Arlington system last summer and just, just launched certificate of occupancy permits at the end of February. Although not an exhaustive list, and Anthony's gonna provide a little bit more detail on this in his presentation, uh, more specifically to planning division efforts, um, I just wanted to briefly uh, share some of the key work items that will be coming forward this year and possibly into next uh, from our department. We have currently 13 active site plans in the queue, plus four additional conceptual site plans that have been submitted. We're also anticipating several more throughout the coming year. These numbers are way beyond what we typically experience. In addition, there are a number of projects that will be coming forth uh, for county board consideration in the fall timeframe, such as the Regional Fair Housing Plan, Plan Langston Boulevard, which also includes land use and zoning tools, the Historic Preservation Plan, which hasn't been updated since 2006, and the home ownership study. Staff will continue to make progress and meet milestones related to crystal houses, the food study, Barcroft redevelopment and renovations, and the county manager's initiative around market resiliency. Now in terms of our work related to equity, the department's been very active on many fronts. We've continued to participate in the countywide race and equity training modules. In addition, CPHD's extended management team has received the equity mindset training offered last year. We've also completed work related to the racial history timeline and the creation of de uh, demographic dashboards. In the last several months, we've partnered with DPR on the Let's Talk About It series, covering topics such as words matter and cultural appropriation. In terms of organizing, we established a more formal CBHD racial equity committee representing all divisions and groups in the department. One of the first tasks is to start work on a racial equity strategic plan for the department that includes goals, strategies, and projects that, that advance equity throughout our department. In terms of how we're operationalizing equity objectives, staff is using the race and ethnicity dashboard and the racial equity lens tool in our plans and our reports. We have initiated the broadband study and homeownership study, and we'll be bringing forward zoning and GLUP proposals related to missing middle at the March County Board meeting. All of these efforts have major implications regarding equity for Arlington. We're also expanding our outreach efforts uh, for civic engagement and getting new and diverse voices in our planning processes. And we also brought back an in-person permit Arlington Center that can assist in digital permitting services for those who might not be able to have access or capabilities from their own homes. And finally, we'll continue to assess efforts as work continues. This will be an important element to the department's strategic planning efforts moving forward. Now getting into the FY24 budget. Um, this CPHD proposed budget, I believe, is responsive to the needs and priorities of Arlington County. We're proposing strategic reductions in the general fund with the goal of having minor impacts to the work that we do. In addition, with respect to our federal allocations, we anticipate, anticipate level funding from last year, and due to pressures on the development fund, we're proposing increases to fees that allows us to sustain it into future years. And finally, we continue to apply an equity lens on the reductions and the requests that are recommended in this proposal. The general fund. The general fund supports the planning, housing, and neighborhood services divisions and a portion of code enforcement in ISD. On this slide, there are two things that I'd like to point out. 
there's a 54% increase in revenue for FY24, which reflects an increase in anticipated planning applications and a 5.2% inflationary increase to planning fees associated with the employee cost index, which is also known as the ECI. This ECI has been applied to CPHD fees before and ensures that the fees keep pace with the annual increases associated with the cost of employees' salaries and benefits. And two, this proposed budget includes the reduction of a management analyst position, an associate planner position, and the transfer of a code enforcement position from the general fund to the development fund, all of which I'll discuss in a little bit more detail in the coming slides. So in developing these reduction proposals, the department took into account impacts to service delivery, opportunities around vacancies, focused on discretionary areas, and looked at organizational efficiencies. In terms of budget reductions, we have five proposals that I'd like to share with you today. The first one is the elimination of a vacant management analyst position. This position provides general administrative support to the director's office and the business operations division and the chief race and equity officer in the county manager's office. With this elimination, the responsibilities will need to be moved to another administrative position in the planning division. This further stretches staff capacity to absorb administrative responsibilities for those respective work units. Our next proposal is transferring a code enforcement inspector position from the general fund into the development fund. This position enforces state and local property related codes. There's no impact to service by this move and the only change is really the funding source. However, in order to offset the financial impact to the development fund, a current vacant overstrength inspector position will continue to be held vacant, resulting in slightly longer inspection periods. Our next proposal is to eliminate a vacant associate planner position in the comprehensive planning section in the planning division. This reduction will result in reduced capacity to complete work projects in the planning division's annual work plan. In the end, if the county board accepts this reduction, certain projects may need to be, uh, may need more time to be completed or the start date may, may um, end up being later down the road. Our fourth proposal is to reduce the consultant services budget in historic preservation program. This reduction will require the department to reprioritize various historic preservation initiatives in the department, including the update to the historic resources inventory. The final proposal for the general fund is a reduction in non-personnel items such as computer software licenses, printing and computer equipment. This reduction will require staff and the community to adapt to less print materials and will need to be more strategic in our use of certain software and technology throughout the department. The Community Development Fund. This fund helps support our community development and affordable housing efforts in the housing division. There are federal and state funds which include CDBG, HOME, and CSBG. So there's two things I wanna point out as it relates to the 45% change related to expenses and revenues on this slide. The FY23 revised budget reflects our regular allocations, 450,000 in projected program income, and our home ARP funding, which is around $2.5 million. The FY24 proposed re removes the one-time home ARP funding and assumes level regular federal funding and projected program income. It's important to note that we have until 2030 to use the home ARP funds. What's not used in 23 will be requested to be rolled over into 24. Currently, CPHD and DHS are working to identify projects for these funds. Also, we're also projecting level funding for 24. 
the future, but the board needs to know that the future of all federal budgets are unknown, and so our future allocations may be different. And finally, the development fund. The development fund is made up of development-related fees that support the Zoning and Inspection Services Division. The FY24 development fund budget anticipates a 6.1% increase in expenses and a 7.5% increase in revenue. In terms of expenses, we're proposing the transfer of a code enforcement position from the general fund into the development fund, and we're also requesting the conversion of three unbudgeted temporary positions to go permanent. These temporary positions are currently filled. They include three construction plan examiners in ISD and a zoning inspector. ISD and zoning rely on these positions to meet the increasing needs of our customers, and we expect that this need will continue into the future. In terms of revenue, to keep the fund healthy and sustainable, we're proposing the, uh, the following fee increases. A 5.2% ECI inflationary increase, similar to what's being applied to planning fees, which I mentioned before. And we're also proposing a 6% increase to the indirect cost surcharge to ISD fees. These indirect costs are paid to the general fund every year and reflect the work other departments do to further support the activities of, the IS, of ISD and zoning. We're also proposing the establishment of a 21% indirect cost surcharge for zoning fees. The indirect cost surcharge has never been applied to zoning fees before. These combined proposals would properly cover the increasing costs associated, associated with overhead expenses. In addition, to further our goals for a sustainable development fund, together with DMF and DES, we're studying our development fees to determine whether our current fees are appropriately recovering costs. Recommendations of that study will be coming forward later this, this year. And finally, before we leave the development fund, I just wanted to give you an update on where we are on Permit Arlington. So to remind the uh, county board, in the past three years, we had three successful phased launches into Permit Arlington, and we just launched our final public-facing application for certi certificates of occupancy. However, our most complicated phase, which was back last summer, for building and trade permits did not perform as expected due to the high volume of active records, the complexity of the business process, and some failures um, in terms of the data conversion process. As a result, this generated a high demand for technical support, and we were unprepared for the volume of requests that occurred. This called, caused delays in response times, and we regret the impacts that this had on our customers. To address this issue, we shifted senior developers to help support customer needs. We added four temporary staff to, help, to our help desk, posted user guides and how-to videos to the public website, and we applied the lessons learned to the most recent launch of certificates of occupancy, which has rolled out really smoothly. We've resolved many issues in the past months, um, and the wait times have uh, reduced, but we're still not back to the target of one to two day turnaround. The team continues to work on permit, permanent fixes within the database to address issues causing the earlier delays. We anticipate that it will take additional time to resolve these issues and meet targets. The Permit Arlington team is working very hard and is dedicated to this effort. Addressing customer needs is a priority for this program and for this department. And finally, there is one last thing to mention. I just wanted to let people know about the Customer Care Center pilot that was launched last fall up on the 10th floor. Since then, we've been averaging around 46 customers a week. 
with a five-minute average wait time and 14-minute average service time per customer. We plan to move down to the lobby in, the late, in late March when construction and other efforts are complete. Um, that concludes the departmental presentation. I'm going to turn this over to Anthony Fusarelli, who's going to provide a brief summary of the preliminary planning division work plan in the event there are specific questions related to that. So, Anthony. Thank you, Claude. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, Anthony Fusarelli, um, happy to be here today and honored to lead the excellent planning team uh, here for Arlington, Virginia. This afternoon, uh, briefly share a high-level summary of key considerations and priorities for the 2023-2024 Planning Division uh, Preliminary Work Program. This is the first of three slides uh, to my presentation this afternoon. However, I will note that there is a more detailed 10-page uh, document depicting the proposed work program, and that is available uh, with the agenda for today's work session. And I believe um, you all are familiar with that information. In terms of process, uh, the proposed work program was shared with our internal partners um, for review and feedback. It was also presented at the February 28th uh, meeting of the Long Range Planning Committee of the Planning Commission. Um, and I won't be covering their specific feedback in my prepared remarks, um, but happy to address any questions that might arise um, as part of the uh, larger conversation. Before uh, speaking to this year's top priorities, I'd like to review just six key considerations that directly shaped and informed the formulation of the preliminary work program. First uh, is the need to timely manage and complete our work on non-discretionary services, especially for site plan and use permit development reviews in addition to admin changes, other use permit applications, and related matters. Uh, shifting to some of our discretionary work, uh, we're placing a high priority on completing several important long-range planning efforts that are currently in progress. Third, as we complete these long-range planning efforts, and this was a, a message conveyed last year, uh, we will be shifting um, greater attention and focus to addressing future zoning studies on a variety of topics uh, in an effort to get our regulations and codes uh, more current and in better alignment with our established visions. And for the next two points, um, these really relate more to how we do our work, uh, both today and moving forward. Um, on racial equity, we are continuing to build our capacity and capabilities uh, in-house in applying a racial equity lens in many aspects of our work, including how we select our work, the scoping of that work, the processes for undertaking that work, and ultimately the outcomes. An important example of this um, recently, or, or very present, includes the racial equity analysis that staff developed uh, for incorporation with our work as part of the Missing Middle Housing Study staff reports. When it comes to broader engagement, um, it's also important to note our continued adaptation and adjustments to hybrid meeting and public engagements, as is being done elsewhere across the organization. Um, but in the past year, we have worked closely with the Planning Commission leadership on process refinements, uh, especially related to how their subcommittees operate. Um, we believe these have yielded positive outcomes, um, but it's also important to note that they do require additional administrative time, um, not just for staff, but also for commissioners as well. And finally, we are very excited about taking on a broader comprehensive plan review um, effort uh, later this year, especially with how that might inform our areas of focus for future work programs. 
And if we move to the final slide, while the read-ahead package uh, online presents uh, much more detail and complete information, I do want to showcase here a number of our top priorities as currently proposed. Um, again, on the non-discretionary side, um, we will be focusing on the timely management and review of over a dozen active site, uh, special exception site plan and use permit development applications, um, along with just as many, if not more, applications that we currently anticipate and may be additionally filed later this year or in 2024. Um, this, this, this work really comprises a significant component of our non-discretionary work portfolio uh, that we must complete in a timely fashion. Next up, this month, uh, our team uh, is excited to present general land use plan and zoning ordinance amendments resulting from the missing middle housing study uh, for the board's consideration, uh, which just last night received a recommendation from the planning commission in this room. Uh, if these amendments are approved in the spring, our team will be uh, preparing informational documents and establishing the permitting and monitoring framework necessary uh, to be ready by the effective date, um, as well as addressing other items. Another important long-range planning effort, our work on Plan Langston Boulevard is on track for us to bring forward uh, a final plan and supporting implementation strategies to the commission and the board for consideration in action later this year. Work on the future of outdoor dining study is also progressing. Uh, current efforts largely focused on uh, developing updated guidelines and, and considering what potential regulatory amendments uh, we want to bring forward to ultimately incorporate more flexibility uh, for broader outdoor dining environments where supported by appropriate environmental conditions. With respect to Barcroft, our planning team looks forward to continuing to work with our internal partners and the Jair Lynch team to review their master financing and development plan, and we anticipate a more detailed update to stakeholders next month. Turning to special GLUP studies, our general land use plan studies, our team is targeting a commission and board review of the 2000 North Glebe Road uh, study uh, in May, and complete, if completed at that time, uh, this should release uh, capacity needed to move on to the next tier two special GLUP study uh, currently in the queue. Progress uh, continues on another key aspect uh, noted in last year's work program, uh, which involves a phased approach to several zoning studies, uh, really in partnership with staff in environmental services and parks and recreation um, that really address important aspects of our public lands, um, whether it is the public spaces master plan implementation, whether it is better facilitating and accommodating stormwater management objectives and solutions, as well as um, looking ahead to better managing county use of lands for essential services and operations. So we have been phasing our work um, over time and continuing to make progress um, in that arena. Um, finally, uh, moving down the list, we have um, initiated discussions and thinking uh, within CPHD and with our partners internally on looking at the next phase of the child care initiative, uh, really thinking through how to make the best use of um, some resources we have uh, included with last year, this year's uh, fiscal 23 adopted budget um, to, to address the important needs of, of that work. And then finally, uh, as a noted as a key consideration uh, earlier, um, we're very excited about the work we'll undertake on the comprehensive plan review 
um, really to identify areas um, where future updates would be helpful, uh, we believe, to the comprehensive plan that would help inform future work programs, um, and really focusing on how best to incorporate maybe some elements that perhaps aren't as present in the comprehensive plan as perhaps they, they should be. So um, with that concludes my um, brief summary uh, for this afternoon. Um, be happy to address any questions uh, within the context of a broader discussion. Thank you, Mr. Fusarelli, and we'll get to that in a moment. Thank you, Mr. Williamson. We're now gonna take a little bit of a break to hear from our uh, commissions who are associated with the work that's been presented thus far. I'd like to invite Devanshi Patel, Chair of our Planning Commission, and Omari Davis, who I also saw back there, Chair of our Historical Affairs and Landmark Review Board, to come on up to the table. And I think we're joined Ms. Jacobs by Laura Malikoff, the Chair of SIDSAC, virtually. And I think, why don't we start with uh, Ms. Malikoff, move on to Mr. Davis, and then have you back clean up. Ms. Patel, that work? Thank you. Hi, greetings, everyone. Um, again, this is Lara Malikoff, uh, Chair of the Community Development Citizens Advisory Committee. I want to first thank the County Board for its support of the many organizations that meet the housing and community development needs of Arlington's low and moderate income residents through the Community Development Fund. Um, it might not be the most highly visible funding source, but many of the programs uh, that support the county's underserved residents receive funding through this program. So along with county staff, the Community Development Citizens Advisory Committee um, works hard to ensure that families have access to the programs that help them, um, help them to secure and maintain housing, avoid homelessness, achieve economic mobility, and foster neighborhood sustainability. So this past year, the committee reviewed, scored, and ranked over 40 applications, and we worked with staff to formulate the Community Development Fund budget recommendation um, being discussed today. We will be reviewing the budget proposal along with the uh, FY24 action plan at our upcoming April meeting, and we intend to write a letter recommending approval. In our review of the applications for funding, um, each of the committee members really brought their experience as county residents and representatives for the low and moderate income residents of their communities. And we really um, placed the focus on reviewing applications with an eye toward diversity and equity. And our goal is to recommend projects for funding that best meet the needs of the community and recommend organizations that have the capacity to really be good stewards of the funding. Um, so I just want to um, extend my thanks for supporting this work. And I wanted to finally note that every year SIDSAC hosts a community development bus tour um, where we visit and highlight programs funded through the Community Development Fund. So I'd like to personally invite county leadership to participate in this year's event which will be on May 3rd. Um, and thank you very much for your support and for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Malikoff. I hope you can stay uh, on if there are any questions or conversations that you'd like to opine on. But next, uh, Mr. Mr. Davis, please. Thanks, Seth. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, good afternoon, my name is Omari Davis. I'm the, I'm the chair of the Historical Affairs at Landmark Review Board. I just want to thank uh, 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 County Manager Schwartz and, and all the board members today for time to us speak. 
And um, I just wanted to sort of uh, jump right in. I, um, again, uh, thank, uh, I want to thank you all again for the opportunity actually to, 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 to uh, share and uh, discuss um, different things um, at today's uh, budget work session. Um, so in review of the FY24 budget um, on behalf of the uh, HLRB, um, I was, uh, uh, we, we, we were unfortunately uh, dismayed uh, to receive, to uh, see the, to, to, see, to, to uh, see proposed cuts to, to, uh, to our consultant services. While the, amount of the, while the amount of the cuts is minimal relative to the, to the overall budget, uh, these cuts will have an, an, an outsized impact on, on the effectiveness of, of a historic uh, preservation program. First and foremost, these cuts will delay implementation of the forthcoming circle, 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 excuse me, a preservation uh, master plan, uh, uh, along with elements such as uh, conducting new studies and, and uh, updating the historical resources inventory. I think we would all, re I think we would all, re all agree that, that the HRI uh, definitely, definitely could uh, stand to be uh, updated. I think that the 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 biggest uh, issue. Um, with, without, cut, without cuts to the master plan at this point, is that the master plan is, uh, set, is set to be uh, uh, adopted in the fall, and this will this, this, this will culminate in a four, this will culminate in a four years um, of of our work and our countless hours of our public input in the making, and have the funding cut at this point, have the funding cut at uh, this point in, in the process um, is, uh, is 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 almost like uh, having the, the, the rug pulled out. Uh, from, from under the, the uh, plan, um, and unfortunately, this this, this, this this would be um, extremely unfortunate, ill-timed, and not self-defeating, I believe. And um, so, let's see, and I guess in, uh, in, in addition to this, cuts will also hamper and reduce historical preservation staff's capacity to, to uh, conduct archaeological archaeological monitoring, as well as well as, the, as, well as the, the, the development of uh, historical markers. The latter of which is the most visible means. By which the public engages with with the, with the HP program, limiting limiting this outreach and limiting uh, the profile of, of historic preservation will uh, will affect the way that it's, it's uh, seen in, in in our community. And uh, finally, I want to end on uh, on a high point. I want to thank uh, County Manager Schwartz and also the board for the for the for the for, for the funding for, for their historic preservation fund. Uh, this fund this fund presents Arlington. With the, with, the, with the unique and, and innovative opportunity to to to, uh, to, uh, to approach uh, to approach preservation from their grassroots up, um, and, and and the fund also allows our, our communities, also, excuse me, the fund also empowers communities to uh, set priorities and guide what preservation looks like for them. The fund has been at, the fund has and fund has an added benefit of extending the expertise of historic preservation staff um, th uh, throughout the community. During time of uh, intense growth and development uh, in the county, so I want to thank you again uh, for your time to uh, speak about the um, FY24 budget, and please do consider the outsized impacts that this that this um, relatively minor cut will have the sort of preservation program. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mr. Davis. And if you'll stay tuned, I know that that will be the subject of at least one question during our conversation. So don't go too far. And Ms. Patel. Okay, good afternoon, Chair Dorsey, um, col uh, colleagues, uh, members of the, ch of the county board, county manager. <laughs> 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 On behalf of the Planning Commission, we appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today about the county manager's proposed FY 2024 operating budget. Of particular concern for the commission is the elimination of the vacant associate planner position with CPHD. 
we agree with staff's analysis that the impact will be a reduction in the overall capacity and resources of the Comprehensive Planning Division and to support projects identified in the division's annual work program, thereby resulting in delays in completing project work. Staff is busy. That's probably an understatement. Mm -hmm. Staff is busy. In fact, the most recent forecasting document for 2023 shows approximately 34 projects, many of which will go into 2024. There are no signs of projects slowing down, and in fact, it's to the contrary. There are a number of current pro um, planning processes that, once approved, are certain to open pathways to additional development applications. So eliminating an associate planner position will have downstream implications. For example, Plan Langston Boulevard is strongly encouraged to come before the Planning Commission um, for approval and implementation in, in the third quarter. We know, however, that PLB is a discretionary project. A non-discretionary project that many in the community, including myself, that are hoping to see is the BHC project, um, and that will be on Carlin Springs Road. Both PLB and BHC are important in their own right and should be prioritized. One has the possibility of meeting the county's affordable housing needs along the corridor, and the other has um, is able to meet a critical public health need. Without enough staff, resources are strained, and parallel priorities are unnecessary, unnecessarily become competing priorities. We strongly recommend that that not happen and that the associate planner position be retained. Additionally, throughout the pandemic, we've seen that staff's implementation of expanded community engagement initiatives and with the missing middle housing study, um, the implementation of a racial equity analysis framework, those we've seen come through and we are hoping to have them expanded. We're blessed to have an engaged community. However, all of us know that not every Arlingtonian is at the table. And in order, to, in order to thoughtfully design processes and rosters to ensure all voices are heard and to develop additional skills to intentionally solicit opinions from those most impacted from our planning processes, we must ensure that staff has the capacity for this additional outreach, engagement, and study. The Planning Commission adopted its equity statement in 2020. And this past week, we heard from so many um, from our community on how we can honor and operationalize our commitment to equity. This planning commission centers equity in all aspects of its work, and it recognizes that planning staff is an essential partner in providing the resources necessary to ensure expanded opportunities are available to invite everyone to the table, and elimination of that associate planner position threatens to compromise our ability to not only reimagine inclusive processes, but also to implement them. So I thank you for your time and attention, and I am available for any questions that you may have. Thank you, Ms. Patel and colleagues. Why don't we have some questions on what has been presented thus far? I'll start us off. Uh, so as it relates to the Community Development Fund, can you give us a sense, Mr. Williamson, of how much money is left unspent from the home ARP funds? It's my understanding that those funds have not been spent yet. At all? At okay. all. So the entire, entire balance is available. And Ms. Malikoff, I think you said it's April that we're getting those recommendations about? That's correct. Uh, our meeting will be the first Wednesday of April. Great. And we will provide those immediately after that. Well, we look, we look forward to that. And a question just for you, uh, while we have you, as you've sort of looked at the uh, expressions of community need, are you seeing any emerging trends over the last year that we should be thinking about in advance of preparing for your recommendations? Um, I think the 
primary trend that we are seeing is a increased request for funding and the subsequent conversations among the committee about um, how we formulate our recommendations to um, do our best to accommodate the increased um, amount of funding and evaluate programs accordingly um, and continue to debate amongst ourselves the merits of funding, meeting, recommending funding to be met um, in the entirety of the request versus kind of spreading funding more widely to, with the intention of reaching more um, beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so in short, it, we have been observing a trend in an increased request for funding across the board. So not necessarily uh, new needs, but uh, need for funding of existing needs more deeply than before. That is correct. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'll spread it around, Mr. Carantonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, and thank you for the comprehensive uh, report here. I know that these are many, many things and I have to say, uh, I felt a little bit better last year when we had the, the planning, uh, you know, session separate from the session. I think uh, it's, it's a lot in one bucket. I think we should be returning to this format. Uh, but uh, just to uh, pick up where Miss um, Patel left it, so can we explain a little bit better uh, why and how are we going to digest the reduction in one associate planner given the, the, the work that is in front of us? And I'm not only referring to Langston Boulevard and the implementation pressure on that, and uh, Ms. housing study will be coming to this. We have also the Barcroft process, uh, which affects thousands of households as well. So um, can you elaborate a little bit on yeah, and then I might turn it over to Anthony to, to, to assist. Um, but in terms of identifying that, that position, um, if you recall in my presentation, there are lots of considerations that we have to take into account in terms of re uh, when we're in reduction mode. And some of those considerations were really about um, focusing on discretionary areas versus non-discretionary discretionary areas and vacancies. And there was an opportunity, if you want to look at it as an opportunity, but there was a vacancy in the comprehensive planning section and um, recognizing it's also a discretionary area. You know, these, these, I would say on the current planning side is the non-discretionary areas where legally we're required to respond to development applications. The long range planning side of things is a little bit more discretionary. Um, I was willing as director looking to, to decide that that cut would probably be impactful, but probably a little bit easier because if there is a vacancy, we wouldn't have to necessarily have to um, identify a position that's already filled. So there were different variables that we took into account as we looked at that. Thank you. I, I don't envy you. I understand that, it's very you, that you are operating in, in a yes. restricted environment. I was trying, and I know that there's a vacant position today. We haven't been. It is vacant. Uh, what I didn't remember is what did we expect from this position? Why did we have this position in the first place? So I, I and I was trying to see when when this position was approved and, and put into into uh, uh, our you know st steady stream of finance, the tax supported stream of financing. 
so we had something in mind. We and, and this hasn't changed so much. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if anything, I understand that this to a certain degree discretionary, um, uh, but I just see that the pressure is um, is, is high. There is high and, pressure, yes. And I have no, I mean, I have the highest respect for the effort that staff has been, uh, uh, you know, the, the work that you have been doing, the entire department has been working very, very hard. And the, the community is expecting even a lot more. So this is why I'm concerned. Just uh, Thank you. Well, I think this is a useful conversation to do what is our periodic PSA to the broader community about when we talk discretionary, non-discretionary, it's not an expression of importance. It's a, an expression of what we are required by law to consider and that we cannot put off versus what we choose to do for our community. Um, and uh, at least in terms of that matrix, there, the, the interests of our community in pursuing bodies of work that are affirmed through this board of, are of preeminent importance, but they cannot supersede what is required to be addressed through, um, you know, through our, our planning division, um, through our CPHD division. And this conversation about capacity, making sure it's right size to deal with both what we are required and state mandated to do versus what it is we want to do is a key part of this conversation. Ms. Crystal. Well put, and speaking of discretionary items that have garnered <laughs> our attention, um, thank you so much, uh, first of all, the staff for the presentation. Um, it is a, really a reminder of how large a body of work this, relatively speaking, smaller department actually manages. And um, thank you to our commission chairs who are with us today. I did want to pick up on the um, comments uh, Chairman Davis made about uh, the HLIB's concerns on the um, consultant services. What I'm trying to understand is, um, the sort of what is the baseline when we are not for consulting services when we are not in the middle of a comprehensive plan element update so i think we've seen for example that we we often bring in consulting services um at the start of a you know major master planning exercise or um like some boulevard comes to mind right another sort of comp plan element and then that kind of naturally tapers down right and so if we are driving towards a conclusion of the um uh, historic preservation master plan you know, is this sort of a return to baseline or does it represent sort of the loss of what has been ongoing for many years and is kind of critical to do uh, the, the, the day in and day out work of the historic preservation program? Yeah, um, I might turn this over to Chickway, but just if I want to add um, this comment, um, the, the consulting funds are ongoing and this would be a removal of those. Um, we typically don't use these types of consulting funds on something like the Historic Preservation Master Plan okay. update. Um, those are used in, uh, in other fashions. These funds also assist um, staff into, in doing additional, um, in the development of markers and any archeological studies that we might need to do along the way. There's some years that we do archeological studies, other years that we don't. Um, but th these are what these funds are typically used for. Thank you. Chickway, I don't know if you wanted to add anything. He's right here. <laughs> <laughs> so wherever you are. Right, wherever I am. So um, yeah, she, <laughs> you, uh, you basically hit the nail on the head. And, and for archaeology purposes, for marker purposes, any types of studies that come up throughout the year, um, that was mentioned, the HRI, I mean, that's one of the major implementation items from the, from the Historic Preservation Master Plan. So that would be funded for through that as well. And that's probably going to be a multi-phase project. So. 
Got it. So that, am I right then to assume that the consulting monies are really for sort of a specialized set of knowledge that we don't return Correct. on staff? Correct. Okay. Thank you. Mr. DeFerranti. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I guess uh, I'll just note that on the on the association pl uh, the associate planner, I know that I think that there are a couple of vacancies that you're still filling, and so um, with this position, I guess I'm interested over the coming months of exploring whether there's a. It's I know it would be ongoing funding, but whether there's a way that we can make it a half year and then ongoing. I know that's not a fiscal savings that the manager, that, that we most love, because it would still be an ongoing cost. But I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on the timing, for because it takes time to find that right fit for the other two positions that I believe are still being filled or almost, or may have been filled. Do you have any thoughts on the timing for how long it might take to fill vacancy type positions um, like that? And I don't, you know, you don't have to speculate, but, um, how close are we? If, if it's going to be January 1st before we could fill this position anyway, I might be interested in a half-time position. Um, so I'll, I'll do my best to address uh, the question, and um, if not, we can try again. But um, just actually appreciate the question because um, something I didn't note in my remarks was that currently, uh, I think in total we have 30 FTEs, um, if my numbers are right, within the planning division. Uh, right now we have four vacancies. Um, now, that's just, there's ebb and natural ebb and flow. And so we are actively, three of those vacancies, we are um, actively moving forward with filling them as quickly as we can. Uh, that fourth vacancy is, that we are not working to fill is um, the associate planner position that is a proposed cut. Um, in terms of the timeline for how long it takes to fill those vacancies, you know, I think we've um, done, I've done, I think we've done well to um, timely fill um, one or two other recent vacancies over the past few years. Um, I don't have an exact num number or timeline in front of me, but uh, we once we know that vacancy is going to happen or has happened, we move immediately towards filling it. Sure, that's great. I just that's really helpful. I'm mindful that it can to find these positions. It can take different times, and so that's just signaling a, a level of interest. I'll yield to have additional questions on the red. Sure, yeah, we'll give everyone opportunities for multiple rounds. Vice Chair mm -hmm. Garvey. Yeah, thank you. Apologies for being late. I don't know if you talked about Neighborhood College, but I was delighted to see that we're going to sessions and it's going way up. It's just a great, you know, I could talk about how good I think that is for our community, but thank you very much. A couple of questions on hoarding. Is the hoarding, hoarding? Yeah, I saw the, the reports on hoarding. Is that a function of aging? So the more older people you have, the more hoarding you have? I don't know. And then I noticed that there was um, clearing. That was one thing. And then there was like more hoarding, but no less clearing. So what what's happening? I'm sure there's something, but it's just not here. Thank you. Mr. Amir. Yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, we are still doing hoarding. Um, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so it's not a function of age. Okay. It's a function of that that psychological uh, disorder that causes it. In terms of the lean and clean, is that uh, the next question mm -hmm. that you yes. said? Um, we really lost our contractor during COVID ah. period, so we didn't have a contractor, but we have resumed that this um, uh, at least this this new fiscal year we are in currently, and we have done uh, uh, several of them, three of them, uh, lean and clean. And we are in the process of uh, getting our RFPs out uh, to get a contractor that we can move forward with. And I assume you work in conjunction with DHS 
Yes, uh, we actually uh, we actually have a team from DHS Mental Health, DHS for Housing, uh, Fire Department is involved. Sometimes Child Protective Services, so it's a it's a combination. And Fire Marshal, if I mention, it's a combination, it's combined effort. And we have a, a ongoing a hoarding task force that meets regularly. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Just wanted a little more information. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to begin round two, moving back to the <clears throat> historic preservation program. So, uh, Mr. Manager, we're not continuing the, the one-time uh, historic preservation funds allocation of, of 150 in any amount. We're zeroing that out for this year, or is there something in it for FY24? Um, just to give the board a little bit of history, there were a couple actions that were done, I believe, in F FY23 that generated uh, the seed money for the Historic Preservation Fund, which I think we now have around $300,000 to do. Uh, we are not requesting an additional 150 for FY24. Um, we're in the middle of the pilot pro project. Uh, more than likely, um, we will probably be dispersing those FY23 funds probably toward the end of this fiscal year, so before June. And so we will be administering and assessing the pilot program through FY24. So we, for that reason, we didn't request additional funds, but I can imagine, I think we will be requesting funds for FY25. Got it. So just in terms of that calendar TikTok, we would need to wait until roughly this year, next time to ascertain, to give you all the comfort to actually extend advertising the program for future fiscal That is correct, year. and right. we want the benefit of assessing the program and okay. the pilot and see what kind of um, impacts it might have okay. or changes, um, and so that's why we thought it was a little too early to request additional funds for FY24. Thank you, thank you. All right, remembering my order, I think it's Mr. Carantonis. Thank you. On on the planning side, Mr. Fusarelli, I, I guess you, you expect that question from me. Uh, so there is a significant constituent input, and last year we had this conversation as well on lot coverage and a study associated with that. Now I understand that we have, now you have a full plate, no, no question about this. Uh, so do you see a place uh, where uh, we reasonably we could align and assure that we can see such a study beginning? No, thank you for that for that question. Um, you are correct, right? Uh, we have one of the top one of the priorities in the work program as a, as a consideration was completing some of the major long range planning efforts. Um, beyond a few that were noted, we still have multifamily reinvestment study and others that are ahead of us that we'd like to conclude soon. Um, so, in terms of prospective timing on you know, thinking about lot coverage and whether it's the scoping of that study and or the undertaking of that study, um, on the scoping side, you know, I think some preliminary think some preliminary thought on that would suggest you know if it would be optimal if we can get through you know those long range planning efforts ahead of us this year and next. Plan Langston Boulevard. Um, some of the special glove studies we'll still, we still have ahead of us, but then also multifamily and reinvestment if, and the future of outdoor dining. If we can sort of clear those projects, those major projects off our plate by the end of this year into early next, um, perhaps then carving out some, some time to, to scope um, what a lot coverage study would be. And I think 
also in relation to lot coverage, um, you'll be seeing that part of last night's planning commission recommendation was also thinking about like an F a floor area ratio approach to low residential neighborhoods as opposed to units per acre or lot size. So there may be opportunities to link those two. Um, so prospectively, you know, scoping sometime in 2024, another angle or, or I think important consideration is do we want to have the benefit of some data, some development, if, if EHOs are approved um, and, and can be permitted later this year, do we want to have some on-the-ground data in terms of what that's yielding to be able to incorporate into a lot coverage study? Um, that is also, you know, and the study itself is also a recommendation of the forestry and natural resources plan. So those things coming together, prospectively scoping, you know, no earlier than 24, and then maybe coming back for a conversation about when an actual study, you know, would would be most sensible given the timing of EHL. Thank you. I, I have no doubt that this won't be a short study, and I understand that there is a sequence that you would like to have some data from here. We we want to see how the natural resources plan uh, plays out. How we, you know, what other kind of uh, requirements will be amassing, and the FAR approach is also a very interesting, uh, you know, planning approach in general. I would like though to encourage uh, to actually be intentional in getting that. In, in putting some priority behind that, uh, greater than it's visible today. I know that you have it in mind, though. Thank you. So why don't we go ahead and see if there are any perspectives on this particular That's issue what I, before I we move up, up on this. Okay, but we got an order. Oh, so okay. Hold tight. Okay. <laughs> Please, let me move right, first. Go ahead, Vice Chair Carney. I missed all that time with you all. You know, here I am. Just following up. Is scoping something we could do a consultant? We could hire a consultant to do? I, and, and so that while we kind of figure out the parameters of what we want to do, and then when the data's in, we're ready to kind of move forward? <laughs> you must have anticipated that question. Well, well one, one, very, mm -hmm. one very current thought, right? And I, and I made mention, I think, earlier to another of our priorities for this year, which is really um, advancing the child care initiative phase two, which, you know, the board incorporated into um, last year's, or this year's fiscal budget, uh, $75,000 in consultant funds, right? We are here in March, right, nine months into the fiscal, um, just now really having the capacity to begin the staff conversations that require for scoping, which go well beyond CPHD, human services, economic development, Parks and Recreation. Um, so I guess briefly put, even getting to the point of having consultants be able to come on board and help scope that, I'm not quite sure that's all that helpful, especially given the amount of um, you know, Arlington-specific and Arlington-distinct intelligence that they would need to know and understand. It may, at the end of the day, be more efficient for staff to actually do the scoping then if we, we decide if there's a decision to seek consultant support to undertake that which it is that we have scoped, that, that might be an approach I think we'd, we'd want to pursue. Okay. I associate myself with Mr. Karantonis's thoughts that, you know, I mean, we're just hearing a lot about this, so we'd love to figure out a way to move it forward a little bit faster. Thank you. Ms. Crystal. Um, I think that was really well put, and I, uh, it resonates with me. Uh, the, the idea that um, there are many things we can look to consultants to do, but I think the biggest challenge vis-a-vis uh, -vis lot coverage is in setting the scope, which is to say collectively defining as a community what problem we want to solve by changing lot coverage. And I think, um, not to get 
too deep in the weeds of something that we will have plenty of time to talk about. But when I think about, we started out with the missing middle, the, there was a pre-scoping community engagement phase. And it was so important to just hear what our priorities were to get the scope right. And I think about um, how adrift we would be had we not even done that work to set the scope and say the things the community cares most about you know, is preservation of neighborhood look and feel and affordability. And those have been the two things that drove the staff recommendations that we've all, as the board and community, sought to evaluate any proposal against. I think starting, you know, lot coverage without saying, what do we want to change lot coverage to do is probably a recipe for maybe a, a something even more contentious than how we've spent, you know, the last year or so. So um, I, I am very eager to take up this conversation. I think there are a lot of really interesting ideas, um, some coming out of the Planning Commission, for example, about how to um, think differently about density and form throughout um, our less intensively developed neighborhoods to serve community goals. But um, I think it's just so important that we figure out what those community goals are first. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, if we can't carve out that time and that space for that conversation, then I think kind of barreling forward anyway, not that either of you recommending that, would, would ultimately lead to, to some real challenges. All of that said, um, I think there is one issue where actually we, we have defined the problem through a comprehensive community analysis, which is one forthcoming with the Natural Resources Management Plan. And that is the idea of um, are there ways to adjust lot coverage, you know, relatively modestly and, and um, pr preserve more trees during uh, redevelopment of those properties. Um, I know the Forestry and Natural Resources Plan has really grappled with this and some of the tensions and trade-offs. Uh, I, I anticipate that one of the recommendations forthcoming from them might be, or is likely to be some simple changes, uh, simple changes, nothing's ever simple when it comes to lot coverage, but some, some relatively minimal changes around, for example, shifting um, uh, closer to the, the, the setbacks, um, smaller in the front yards than they are in the rear yard to protect more tree, tree uh, growth in the rear yards. I would love to make sure that we have the capacity within planning to just take a look at what f comes out of forestry and natural resources, see if there's some relatively speaking quick strike things we can do short of that full scoping and com comprehensive community conversation to see if we can't you know, change our rules to, to some degree to, to really serve this strongly held desire, I think, across all sectors of the community, which is to protect trees during redevelopment of low density properties. So um, that's sort of my, my take overall. Um, uh, and I hope we can, we can find a, a little capacity to pursue that goal if possible. Mr. DeFerranti, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I agree with the point on, um, on consultant services and the scoping. Um, and I agree with the point on the natural resources management plan, but for me, um, I think there are a host of legal issues involved. My understanding of the last time we took, we, we analyzed lot coverage is it took years more than we thought. Um, but for me, a priority, I'm sort of a third voice that feels like we need to get to this within the next six to 12 months in, in, for me, in, in deeper discussion. And I don't think it has to be, I mean, we've had mention of FAR, we've got setbacks. Um, I think the lack of clarity from the board has led to no two by twos that have defined the problem and with the board. And that doesn't mean the community shouldn't have full voice, but I think those of, 
I think the time frame for me is shorter, and the, there's a desire at least, there's a, a clear signal, I think, from three of us that within the next six to 18 months, want to dig into part of this. I would say that the task of going to a FAR system is a big source of discussion. That does not feel within our grasp to me in the next six to 18 months, but I'm mindful that that may be inextricably linked with the setbacks piece. But I want to at least signal that I'm a third voice that feels that we need to put this within our reach with, in a shorter time frame than, than uh, we have. And sorry to, I know we'll talk about this more, but thank you, Mr. Chair and Kyle. Thank you. Well, I don't think we need to talk about it much more today, and I'll just add my voice to this going, this is extremely difficult, complicated, or nuanced, layered, and everything else. And I really think Mr. Fusarelli's point that we can't just simply think that some other expert is going to be able to do something that reflects what needs to be considered in Arlington, and therefore it's going to require staff resources that are already overspent on other areas, and there's a proposal to reduce them further. Just want to be very clear about where we are. So as much as we may believe that this is important or a priority, the task that we have is to provide the resources to make it happen, not simply ask that it be prioritized. So uh, over the course of the budget season, if this emerges is something that the board has greater specificity about what it would like to do, uh, we have a responsibility to make sure it's reflected in the capacity in the budget. I'll leave it at that. Um, Ms. Crystal? Different topic. Okay. Different topic? Yep. All right, we're on to the next round. All right, I think I start, I, I start off, we'll continue that. Um, all of my questions have been asked. So, Mr. Carantonis? Uh, yeah, just briefly in the third round. Um, the, um, the, the, department, the urban design group uh, that is always very dear to me, uh, it's also to a certain degree discretionary, but uh, I think that the, its, its output is critical for the success uh, in many non-discretionary <laughs> areas. Uh, so I'm, I'm struggling to, to figure out whether uh, we resource it properly, whether we can do more, uh, or uh, whether the, we, we implement the emphasis in this department in an efficient way to inform uh, everything we, we can. I, I kind of theoretically believe that a, a, a great urban design department is a very helpful tool uh, to get everybody, uh, you know, everybody else who's working on, on these difficult topics or complex topics, I should say, uh, to, to, um, to be more efficient in delivery. Uh, and I want to make sure that we leverage the most out of this department. Does that conclude your questions on this part? Yes, I want to know what. It is a question. I want to, I want, it is a question. It is a question. I, 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 I try to see uh, urban design being more present in the in the considerations that we make, uh, besides other policy considerations. And for me, this is extremely important because it uh, conditions a lot how, uh, you know how scoping functions, how the community uh, receives things, how equity works. So this is, for me, yeah. really important. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, urban design. So urban design um, has come a long way in terms of within the planning division. I don't know if um, people recall that um, former board uh, member Jay Fazette initiated an urban design initiative. And which really promoted the importance 
of good urban design in the work that we do. From then, we did we have made changes. You know, we have an urban design awards, which reflect great quality uh, projects that uh, we have out there in Arlington County. But we also reorganized. We never had an urban design section within the planning division. We do now. We have three people who support that section. Overall, I think looking at the planning division, I think it's very, very efficient division. And I think we have leaders and great managers in that division that really recognize the, the talent, not only in the urban design team, but also on the current planning side and comprehensive, pl comprehensive planning side where we can shift and move certain staff resources and expertise. Um, we, do I think it's understaffed in terms of urban design? Absolutely. I would love to have additional staff resources in that area. Urban design is very important to me. I know it's very important to this planning director. And so if that, I hope that answers your question. That, that, that answers it to, to a certain degree. Do you, um, do you believe that we should uh, um, consider uh, improving at least uh, the Design Arlington program, uh, adding uh, some sort of, uh, I mean, we, we are giving awards. We are trying to incentivize practitioners here in Arlington to produce better buildings, right? Uh, buildings that look better, work better, uh, are, are friendlier to, to, our, to our goals as a community. So do you think that we have to improve this program to maybe add a monetary reward or some sort of material reward? The award, for to the urban design awards process? Um, yeah, I'll actually turn to I'm happy to Mr. Fusarelli. Yeah. I, I think actually, and, and I, I may have- Anthony was actually one of the first people to work this program through. Right, I, I think the lead of our historic preservation program, Cynthia uh, Lichez Torres and I um, helped sort of revive the design awards program that was once with, nested within uh, HLRB and then it became a broader opportunity. Um, so over the number of years that, you know, 2009, 2007, when that was revived, I'm actually still amazed that we get the level of interest each, each, I think every other year that we run the program in the applications we get, knowing there is not a monetary award and there still seems to be an appetite and desire to you know, put forth one's great work, seek recognition for it and have it celebrated. Um, so I'm not sure that it's, you know, that it's absolutely necessary that it would lead to more applications. I think it's hard to say. Um, obviously it would depend on the size of the monetary award. <laughs> Thank you. I was more, more uh, you know, thinking of uh, incentivizing people to actually have competitive uh, uh, processes for, for design solutions to their buildings. Uh, you know, we had some, uh, some criticisms, for example, Columbia Pike, the form-based code uh, is interpreted in a very standard way, let's say, uh, and you get a lot of uh, repetition uh, in, in design choices because, you know, the designers have chosen to optimize their time and produce the same design once, uh, you know, to copy and, and paste. Uh, so uh, maybe uh, I will take it up with you to see whether we can incentivize a more diverse, uh, diversified approach to this. Thank you. All right, thank you. And Ms. Crystal next. Thank you. And I, I just wanted to note, Mr. Chair, I really appreciated your comments that uh, if we are interested in more things, it is now our opportunity as well as responsibility to find the resources for them. And I also wanted to note, thinking that this was, it was under my auspices that we gave budget direction last year. I think it 
in case anyone needs reminding. <laughs> the reason these cuts are on the table is because this board asked the manager to bring us a budget with a flat tax rate. Um, and so I, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I know I see Mr. Williamson, we'll see all of our departmental directors. I, I know there is no departmental director that wants to be before us with cuts. So I just think it's important they're following through on our direction uh, when, when we ask these questions. Uh, that's an important thing to bear in mind. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, the um, shift to permit Arlington online since we've got you here. Obviously, this has been something on the mind of our community recently. I appreciated the, the um, details that you shared about some of the challenges of, of introducing those last phases of permits online uh, back in September. One thing that I'm not sure I heard that seems to be the biggest pain point, at least that I hear from constituents or that has come up in the community, um, is the handshake between divisions or departments being a particular challenge. So, um, you know, it's not just what is the customer care I get from the customer care center. It is um, when my permit needs to go from ISD to DES um, or uh, from somewhere within CPHD to somewhere else within CPHD. That's where things seem to, we, at least anecdotally here, things are getting dropped, delayed, um, uh, or, or other issues kind of beset the process. Can you or the appropriate team members share a little more about how you work with other, within the, the kind of multiple entities within CPHD and the divisions there or with other divisions and areas maybe you see room for improvement? Would you challenge that perspective that there's problems at the point of handshake or handoff? What else should we know? I know, I, I saw the, the, the I, I felt like I was very powerful at that moment. Well, like your question sort of reflects the amount of interdivisional and yeah. interdepartmental efforts that occur in order to issue permits. Exactly. And so we do have um, uh, Sharier Amiri Hiri with ISD and Arlova Vonham with, with uh, the zoning division. Yeah. And we also have our permit Arlington pro program manager, De Debbie Albert. Um, but it is it, it is complex, and I, we've heard some of that feedback as well in terms of, you know, the interactions and the relationships between the different divisions and, and and the departments. And maybe one department or division is holding something up, and they're waiting for that next approval to be moved forward. Um, it it is always a challenge. The permit Arlington system was designed to help facilitate permits going through the process. I believe it has. Um, but I will turn it over to Mr. Amiri, who would like to provide a little bit more comment on that. Yeah, sure, uh, Ms. Crystal, as a practitioner of 37 years and counting, uh, so some of the comments you hear is no, I'm not surprised by it. Every time you have this mass migration from a pre-Y2K <clears throat> pre, uh, technology to a new technology, it's a listen learn for everybody. You know, uh, our staff has to learn uh, different tools, different manners to do, and our customers the same. Um, I always recall when I was in Montgomery County, I made the news uh, in a matter of a week. They said, how great you're doing, and the first day we went up, the system shut down for three weeks, and we didn't know how. Mm. Um, so I've seen that happen. I think it's part of the process. Uh, if you ask, I, I suspect that if you ask our customers six months down, down the line, that you're not going to see the same type of complaints. One of the things I think I have always been proud of 
is creation, the concept of permanent Arlington. You don't see that often when three functional areas come together with different priorities and, col and collaborate and work as a team. You know, I welcome you to come to the, you know, 10th floor when we are open. I mean, we have the same mission. We established the same timeline for review. We were all over the map. You know, I still was three weeks, somebody else was uh, four, four months or vice versa. We have agreed upon time frame. I think some of the delays and frustration is just learning the new system. And, and I think right now that we have launched the CO, the last piece of this process, I think the next effort is to uh, need a modifying the pain point, paying more attention to how we can, you know, maneuver the system to, uh, you know, to serve as customers. Uh, but in, it, it, I don't believe there is anything broken in the process. Uh, I think we have made a great deal of improvement in the process, the handoff from department to department. Uh, I, I can tell you the staff on all fronts, uh, they are very keen about the handoff needs to be a, uh, you know, as smooth as, uh, so I think this is a combination, um, you know, of learning new system and, you know, uh, we need to be a little bit patient for it, you know, until we manage uh, going to the next mode of streamlining the process. Uh, I would, I would hope uh, that six months down the road when we do a survey, the results would be um, definitely different. I don't know whether I answered your question or not. It did. I mean, I think that my question was, are there areas to improve that handshake? And I think what I'm hearing for you is from you is that um, the the experience, the, the to the extent customers have had experiences below what we would expect or want for them, it's really been a of the new system. Part of the new system. I, I'm not saying that um, our processes are great. Um, we have a very complex process that everybody needs to touch everything. You know, the building permit that goes out of here has my signature on it. But before I can put my signature on it, another half a dozen departments needs to sign off on it. So it's a complexity of the process also that, that feeds that one. And when you're going to a brand new system that everybody has to learn from beginning, it uh, sometimes exasperates the experience. Thank you. Mr. DeFranti. Um, thank you. I, I, I'll have a separate question. I mean, I'd be interested and I'll want to follow up on the, as you move to the uh, first floor, two days a week, three days a week, and also just a little bit better understanding of that hope that we reduce those times uh, over the next six months. That's That'll be really of interest. So uh, I, I don't know what that'll be in this month, but it, uh, I will be asking for a meeting uh, down the road in this. My question, I'm, I'm sort of, um, I have two, question, two areas of questions and I wanna be efficient. I'm not sure the work plan, we're covering that right now, is that correct? We're not going, uh, you're not gonna cover that? Okay, so the, the question is, um, Ms. Patel, you re really aligned with, with uh, my thinking on Langston uh, and uh, the VHC and uh, I am very eager to move forward on both. Um, and I wonder, wanted to see, I think this is for Mr. Fusarelli, it's, um, I know that there's both the plan and then the implementation on Langston, and um, my sense is the estimate is third quarter of this calendar year, um, and there's a little bit of work left to do to see if both 
plan and implementation can come to us at the same time. I just want to express how uh, eager I am for that to move forward and to understand that question. A little bit of, do we need some more work before we know whether it's plan and implementation at the same time, or we already set that both the plan and the implementation framework would come forward uh, together? No, thanks. Thank you for clarifying that question. Um, and I think the last time we spoke indicated uh, some of the project team meetings were upcoming to really dive deeper into that. Um, one of them uh, just occurred last week. Um, I, I, I have greater confidence or increased confidence that we'll be able to bring forward the implementation and the plan. Great. Um, that's in our end, as noted in the documentation, our current target uh, would be third quarter. Great. Well, thank you. Um, I feel like the, in the movie where they say, I strenuously hope that we can get there soon, and I know that's been so. So um, that's it. I, I will have one more question, and I can yield now or do it at your pleasure, Mr. Chair. Wrap it up. Um, I wanted <laughs> thank you, sir. Um, Melwood, uh, I wanted to inquire about the Melwood project, and um, that is uh, an opportunity for additional affordable housing. I know that a site plan has been submitted. I wondered if you could provide an update. That is also a priority. Uh, thank you for that question as well. Um, the Melwood um, site as well as uh, another site on the 2300 block of South Eid Street, um, those currently comprise the two uh, tier two special GLUP studies that are in the, in the queue. Um, I believe just from a chronological perspective, if memory serves, the Eade Street application, I think, was submitted the cycle before um, the Melwood. And as I noted earlier, um, we're looking to bring forward uh, to the Commission and Board uh, in May uh, the closeout for the North Glebe, the 2000 North Glebe Special Glove Study. Um, so uh, I would anticipate that shortly thereafter um, we would be beginning the next um, Tier 2. Um, and we will have you know, more detailed information in terms of which that is uh, probably a few months from now. Great, thank you. I'm mindful of the Chair's comment that both with respect to financial resources but also work, we would have to pull something out in, a, in, in order to want something sooner. So I'll follow up on that one. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. DeFranti. Vice Chair Garvey. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was told that when you did your presentation, you did not go over the child care initiative. If that's true, could you just give a few sentences on child, this is a priority coming up, child care initiative phase two, and remind me and maybe some others what that involves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for that question. Um, so within the, I'd say the past month, uh, we have started discussions within CPHD with partners in human services. We need to reach out next to economic development, to parks and recreation. Um, we are, we, that, those conversations will inform the drafting of a scope, which we will then put out uh, for to try and get a consultant to, to help us with this work. Um, the consultant again is okay. All right. In ahead. the conver in the conversations to date, yeah. I think what a uh, few things have come come through. Um, some really insightful uh, conversations with our partners in DHS um, about some of the challenges. About um, you know there are pools of funding available for you know subsidized slots, um, but challenges to actually get. Um, encourage and induce um, certain providers to accept those slots when they could accept non-subsidized um, clients or customers, for example. Um, and so looking at challenges and opportunities um, with how to address that, you know, are there uh, county resources and facilities that, you know, could factor into that equation? 
Um, that, I mean, that's one example. I, there's also been an ongoing discussion about, you know, potential consideration of, you know, additional density through the zoning ordinance for provision of, of space um, for childcare. Um, so we're, we're, you know, we have begun the conversations. I think we've had more work ahead of us. Um, one, I think, uh, thing that we could perhaps even address, I would expect we could address before consultant support would be taking another look at the use permits that are still required for the family day, the family home providers um, between I think 10 and 12 um, and looking to do something similar with those as we had done with the five to nine previously. Yeah. Um, so an array of, of array of opportunities is just working no, through. That, that's excellent, thank you. And that we're not gonna plunge ahead and solve a problem that maybe isn't the one that we really need to be solving. Appreciate Absolutely. it, thank you. Sure, Ms. Crystal. I just wanted to make one comment. I, um, I am a little disappointed that it is in 2024 on the work plan. Um, understand why that's necessary. Uh, just wanted to say, since I won't be here then, for the record, I, just to elevate something that I have shared with staff um, before, which is uh, I really hope that we can keep the focus in that study on affordable childcare. And if we're talking about incentives, as far as I'm concerned, actual just provision of space for childcare, looking to childcare operators as tenants, that's table stakes, right? I don't think we should be incenting or looking for ways to incent that at all. I think the, the really key thing is exactly as Mr. Fusarelli talked about. Um, it is hard for providers to take our subsidy program, the state subsidy program. I hope there, I know there is more we can do and we'll probably talk about DHS um, to, to overcome some of those barriers. Uh, but when it comes to using our zoning tools, giving bonus density, that type of thing, um, in the same way that you know we don't necessarily incent the creation of market rate housing, even though it is absolutely necessary and good, um, uh, we incent the creation of affordable housing, and I really think that paradigm for childcare is important too as the study goes forward. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Of course. All right. With that, I think I'd uh, just like to extend our thanks to Chairs Davis, Malikoff, and Patel. Thank you for joining us, sharing those perspectives. Very important for our conversation. We could, of course, spend a lot more time here, but hopefully, colleagues, you uh, accept my gentle facilitating because we not only have our housing program, but then our also de entire Department of Human Services upcoming during this session. So thank you all and have a great day. And Devonshi, get some rest. Oh my God. Right? Christian the hammer doors. <laughs> So, uh, we've had a changing of the guard here. We're gonna, uh, I'm gonna turn it over to, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the look from Anne that she's ready. <laughs> and Venezia is here, uh, and along with Anita Friedman, to start our conversation on housing. So over to you, Ms. Venezia. Always love the collaborative nature of this joint presentation. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> okay, I think I'm good. How's everyone doing today? We're well. How are you? Great. Um, I know we have a lot of information to cover, and we still have a whole other department to go after this, so I'll try to go through this as quickly as I can. Um, so good afternoon. I'm Ann Venezia. I'm the county's housing director, 
And in this budget segment focused on housing, Anita and I are going to share how DHS and CPHD work together to support greater housing affordability and stability in Arlington. And we're going to talk about the lovely spring weather for just a moment while we await <laughs> our slides to be projected. Um, they're really good slides, so I, th I think we're going to be really no excited. more. We got them. Yeah. We got them. You're ready to go. We're good. Excellent. Okay. We're sure you're behind we're... you. They're teasing you. There, there we go. Excellent. This always happens with this presentation. <laughs> I don't know why. It's because it's me and Anita that this happens. Okay. Um, so this is an overview slide that you saw during the county manager's presentation on his proposed budget. Anita and I will be covering these proposed budget amounts in greater detail now. Next slide. Affordable housing remains one of Arlington's biggest challenges, and Arlington's investment in and care of these communities reflects the county's commitment to racial equity, as well as where additional work is still needed. With many people in our community facing urgent threats to housing, solutions must balance support for individual needs with efforts to increase supply and ensure the supply is well maintained. CPHD and DHS work together to meet this demand for housing affordability by creating programs that complement each other to support Arlington's low-income households. For instance, committed affordable units, or CAFs, secured by CPHD help provide a supply of units for DHS's housing grants and permanent supportive housing clients. Meanwhile, DHS subsidies and case management help as well as um, eviction prevention resources fill the affordability gap for CAF households and improve housing stability. Collaboration is also seen in ongoing efforts like the Barcroft, where DHS and housing staff work together to focus on individual living situations by identifying resident needs for rental assistance and other support. It's important to emphasize how this collaboration between CPHD and DHS is part of an overarching strategy for affordable housing in Arlington. Next slide. I have the privilege of kicking off today's joint presentation on housing by discussing the county's Affordable Housing Investment Fund, or AHIF. The county is a mission-driven lender, and the primary goal of the AHIF program is to create and preserve CAFs. AHIF is the county's main vehicle to both preserve and create long-term affordable housing by making low-interest loans to developers. With Arlington's AHIF program, the county historically has decided to use these funds as, as cash flow loans, meaning the county is repaid as property funds are available. And since AHIF's inception in 1988, and not including Barcroft, the county board has allocated $457 million for over 120 loans to date. And with this loan model, since the inception of the program, we've received approximately $150 million in loan repayments and 43% of the county's loans have paid in full. For fiscal year 24, the county manager proposes $9.7 million in ongoing funds for AHIF. And while one-time funds aren't proposed for fiscal year 24, this proposal retains level ongoing funds for this important program. Next slide. With the AHIF model, we've had a number of accomplishments these last few years. For example, the county's CAF portfolio grew 28% between fiscal year 20 and fiscal year 22 from 86,000, I'm sorry, from 8,650 units to over 11,000 units. And during the same time period, 
the number of CAPs affordable to households earning less than 30% of the area median income doubled. Additionally, to improve oversight of the county's investment, CPHD housing increased housing quality standards cap inspections from 5% of the portfolio to over 20%, even with the growth I mentioned a moment ago, between fiscal year 21 and fiscal year 23. And all of these accomplishments occurred during a national pandemic. Next slide. As we anticipate our full funding picture for fiscal year 24, it's important to consider the county's commitment to the Barcroft community. As you may recall, the county assisted Jire Lynch by using a $150 million line of credit to support the purchase of Barcroft Apartments, which consists of 1,334 one, two, and three bedroom units. Staff continues to work with the Jire Lynch team to review the master financing and development plan they submitted in October. And while higher interest rates and increased construction costs make the financial models more challenging at Barcroft, we still anticipate being able to deliver on all of the commitments the county made in 2021. Namely, to retain all 1,334 affordable units with no displacement of legacy residents, regardless of income, household size, or immigration status. Staff will provide briefings to board members later this month and have a more detailed update to share with the Barcroft stakeholders in April. In fiscal year 24, Barcroft debt service on the $150 million county line of credit is projected to be $7.8 million. As part of the county's acquisition loan agreement, Jire Lynch must pay 1% interest on the outstanding balance of the county loan. And so as a result, we anticipate a $1.5 million interest payment on the outstanding county loan balance in fiscal year 24, which can be applied to this debt service obligation. And pending future interest rates, we anticipate debt service amounts may increase in out years. Next slide. Another important piece of our fiscal year 24 funding picture is the Columbia Pike TIF. The Columbia Pike TIF was established in 2013 to help finance affordable housing initiatives in support of the Columbia Pike Neighborhoods Area Plan. Since its establishment, and as, and as of the start of this fiscal year, the Columbia Pike TIF has generated $4.1 million in revenue. Further, this TIF has assisted three housing projects to date with approximately $1.5 million in, in financing. For fiscal year 24, the county manager recommends that the outstanding TIF balance plus revenue collected in fiscal year 24 be used to support the Barcroft debt, and these amounts total approximately $5.3 million. Next slide. This slide summarizes all of these funding pieces for the board's consideration. The county board's annual appropriation to AHEF is one piece of the county's multifamily development loan fund. This slide shows how developer contributions, loan repayments, federal funds, and the Columbia Pike TIF outlined on the previous slide also support the county's loan fund for multifamily development. While all of these sources for fiscal year 20, or with all of these sources for fiscal year 24, the projected county budget is $22.3 million. This slide also demonstrates the uh, projected debt service needs for both Barcroft and Buckingham Village's three debt service payments, which are 7.8 million and 2 million respectively, for a total of $9.8 million. After considering these debt service obligations, the anticipated net budget for AHEF is approximately $12.5 million in fiscal year 24. Next slide. To wrap up, I wanted to highlight our housing quality standards, or HQS inspections work, which is a key component of the county's long-term strategies 
for improved oversight and tenant support at aging calf properties, which was released in April 2022. For the benefit of the board and the community, I wanted to share that our annual progress report for these strategies is anticipated in May 2023 and will be shared in the Affordable Housing Master Plan annual report in future years. Staff continues to monitor the health of CAF properties through physical and financial inspections. And through the fiscal year 23 budget process, approximately $200,000 was allocated to increase property inspections capacity. As a result, CPHD Housing hired a third-party inspections firm to inspect approximately 2,000 additional units in 2023. CPHD Housing will work with the county manager to continue support for this work in fiscal year 24. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Anita to discuss some of DHS's housing programs and associated budgets for fiscal year 24. Thank you and good afternoon, members of the county board, manager Schwartz, colleagues. Um, the DHS side of the house is uh, focused on providing the rental subsidy supports and uh, supportive services to ensure that our lowest income members of the community are able to maintain uh, affordable and decent housing. In FY 2024, and some of you have had a preview of this eviction prevention work already, we are um, requesting a one-time amount of $3 million uh, for, for eviction prevention funds and $600,000 in ongoing. Um, so far to date, just so you know, eviction prevention remains high. In this fiscal year alone of 2023, uh, $5.4 million has been dispersed to over 1,200 households. Uh, that's of, as of February. We also know that these households are predominantly BIPOC, 44% are Latino households, and 26% are black, and they uh, primarily resi reside in 22204. The reason that we have this high expenditure um, this year is that the rent, the rent relief portal of the state uh, ceased to function or have any funding as of May of this last year. Nonetheless, there had been determinations by the state of approvals for rental relief. Um, they sent out notices to households that that funding was no longer available. Um, some of our neighboring jurisdictions decided not to assist those households. Arlington uh, went ahead and assisted those households that still had uh, rental arrearages and had been promised by the state to remain in their housing. Um, so we have uh, been spending at a higher than uh, expected rate. Last summer, if you remember, we had some conversations about how to sort of bring the eviction prevention uh, program back towards pre-pandemic levels. Pre-pandemic levels, we had on a busy year, we'd have a million dollars of, of uh, eviction prevention going out the door. Um, so we took a phased approach, and um, last October, we lowered the area median income threshold from 80% to 50% AMI. We sent out notifications to all households who had received eviction prevention before. 
Um, then as of January 1st, just now recently, we put in a cap of $7,000 per household for the, for the calendar year in terms of the maximum amount of eviction prevention funding they can get. We're also requiring that there be a notarized lease, a five-day notice to pay or quit, proof of financial hardship, um, a mandatory referral to the Arlington Employment Center, and that the maximum rent that um, amounts that we can uh, consider when people are approaching is are 150% of the fair market rents. Um, nonetheless, we still have evictions uh, happening. This uh, Thursday, every Thursday, there's an eviction docket. Our, our staff uh, from the Community Assistance Bureau attend, along with Legal Services of Northern Virginia. We work very closely um, with the landlords and the courts to ensure that if there is a chance that this uh, that a family can have their arrearages taken care of and their uh, eviction be uh, stayed or eliminated, we can we do that. Um, we are working with landlords to better understand, so they can better understand our policies and our limits. And um, we will continue to um, work with APA, AHC, and all the other landlords to ensure as much as possible that uh, the households are not adversely affected. Next slide. Housing grants. Well, that's our favorite program. Housing grants is one of the key tools of Arlington's housing affordability. Um, as you know, the committed affordable units that are produced through AHIF are largely targeted to 50 to 60% of AMI, although there's more that are now uh, getting lower. Um, but housing grants brings the affordability down to around 30% of area median income by providing a subsidy. This coming fiscal year 2024, we are requesting a $2.4 million in one-time funds uh, for a total of $14.4 million. Actually, this is where we expected to, we, we are in 24, where we expected to be in 23. We have not expended at the same rate. Um, and the reason is that when the COVID criteria that we had that had loosened the work requirements for working families, when that expired, if you remember that expired uh, this past year, um, we had a little bit of a dip and then people went off the housing grants and we had reapplications once people established their work requirements. So you can see that in the orange line where the dip is. So we're going to be at 1551. We project households to be served in FY24 uh, for the $14.4 million. You also have in your, well, should have been distributed to you, our annual updates of the housing grants history, which is an orange handout and also a green handout that has a- We received no handouts. No? Well, Corey can probably remedy that. Managers on it. Full service manager. Should have been handouts. Yeah. I'm not sure how they got to. But in any case, these are our, I will have them sent to you. These are our, our, and our, every year we present our history of housing grants over the last five years and the snapshot of who is currently in housing grants. Um, 
So that's coming to you in a, the a theater near you, I hope. Have it electronically, so we're good. I think so. Okay. Housing Grants Program History? Yes, Program History. Orange has orange line and Housing Grants Program Snapshot. So it basically shows you that of the um, 15, of the current number of households enrolled, we have about 32% who are 65 and older, 42% are folks with disabilities, and 26% are working families. And the average annual income of folks are very, very low. Uh, working families have an annual average income of $33,781. People with disabilities and aging, and the 65 and older, around $16,000 a year. So we're dealing with extremely vulnerable populations. Um, we can go back to the housing grant slide. The growth for next year is expected to be, or from this year to next, is 4.9%. Okay. I need the slide that has the Mars coming up. So the maximum allowable rents um, of people who have housing grants uh, keep up with the 60% HUD AMI rate. Uh, that was something that the manager adopted in FY 2020. Um, prior to that, if you remember, there was 10 years where it never had increased and people could no longer find apartments that were affordable. This has allowed people to find uh, and access more affordable uh, a broader range of affordable units. The housing grant study, I'm sure you're all anxious to hear about that. So last year you said, Mr. Manager, we need a housing grant study. And, and the manager said to me, Anita, get on it. So um, we started by contracting a um, consulting company, Rheingold, and they did an extensive outreach to the community, focus groups with applicants, current participants, past participants, internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. We did telephone surveys. Uh, we did interviews with key folks in the county government. And we also got a developmental, uh, a person on a developmental assignment to be the study coordinator who came from DES. Uh, where she is doing extensive regional and national uh, literature review. We are reviewing the history. We are reviewing the rental household uh, his history. And we are going to have very soon for you an update f with recommendations. Um, and we will have a community forum with, after we have those recommendations, and we will deliver to you by the summer a final report. And there's, of course, you know, preliminarily, there are things in there that are changes to eligibility criteria, certain special populations that people would like to assist, you know, previously incarcerated or foster, youth aging out of foster care. There are recommendations about how we manage the program, making how to make it more user-friendly, more customer service-oriented, more um, you know, seamless in terms of the application process. 
all of that will be incorporated into the report that we give to you this summer, and then you will decide, you know, what you want to do. Okay, housing choice vouchers. Now, housing choice vouchers, everyone knows, is a fully federally funded program, 100% federal from HUD, and um, this shows basically that, you know, the amounts per average subsidy are going up. They're much higher than, you know, housing grants. Housing grants is in the 700s. This is in the 1200 now. Um, the households that are enrolled are 1528 uh, or projected to be in FY24. We actually have, though, over 1700 vouchers. The reason we can't lease them all up is because our budget doesn't allow us to lease it all up because with 1,528 vouchers, we will already have expended our, the cost per voucher is so expensive that you can't go over your budget. The other exciting thing about housing choice vouchers this year is that uh, we are porting in 141 additional vouchers uh, for seniors living in Culpeper Gardens. If you remember when Culpeper Gardens was redeveloped, and there were uh, additional vouchers put, put into there, 141. We didn't have the capacity to manage that program. So Fairfax County managed it for us for the last, I think, five or six years. That's gonna bring up our grand total of vouchers to 1848. Next slide. Permanent supportive housing. There's no additional funding request for FY24. Um, we do have currently, um, or we will have in the base budget, $3.6 million. We also are, have successfully garnered federal and state uh, funding uh, coming from the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services and, and other monies from HUD. So we're expected to serve 379 households. This is an evidence-based model, high number of previously homeless, um, year over year, 93% of participants retain their housing. Average housing tenure is 5.6 years. We do have a pretty late, you know, high wait list now, 65 clients on our wait list. It's taking longer to find units. Um, you know, there's high acuity uh, of, within the population itself, you know, in terms of behavioral health issues but also there's the scarcity of the units that are available. Uh, although, you know, we work with CPHD to, to enter into agreements to procure those. Next slide. Two more items. Uh, one is housing, is HQS inspections. HQS is the housing quality standards that's been adopted by HUD. Um, those are the, that's the level of inspections that CPHD did for last year of 2,000 units. Um, we are requesting $1,000, $100,000 for local funds for permanent supportive housing inspections. And, and from Housing Choice Voucher, we're going to use $100,000 of our administrative funds to inspect those units. Uh, we have no set inspection people in permanent supportive housing case managers who are supposed to focus on like tenancy issues, you know, helping the household maintain and resolve their instability issues. 
they are the ones who currently do the inspections. So uh, we believe that it would be much better if we had a contracted professional uh, vendor who uh, can conduct HQS at move-in and annual recertification to ensure that there's quality standards that are enforced because these units often have a lot of uh, issues and upon inspection. And we're also going to work with landlords to ensure that all the agreements reflect the kinds of standards that we believe should be met through uh, HQS. Next and final slide. Landlord engagement analyst. So um, I think we, we were discussing landlords before. And um, without the landlords, we can't have, we, without their cooperation, we can't place people into the unit. So it really behooves us to have a person who can uh, focus on engaging with the landlord community, and I'm not just talking about APA and AHC, I'm talking about the multiple, the multitude of, um, you know, private landlords that are out there so that they can understand the different housing programs we have, the requirements, the payment standards, um, have good communication, we can provide them with technical assistance when they need it or supports for, their for the uh, tenants, um, so we have a request in here for one management analyst uh, to provide landlord engagement training and support. It would be funded 60% by Housing Choice Voucher and 40% local funds. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you, Ms. Friedman. Ms. Venezia, we appreciate it. Uh, let's see, of course, we'll have our Housing Commission, uh, hopefully, Present is Mr. Macbeth here today. Please make your way up to the front. And also, Mr. Wimbush, I see from our Tenant Landlord Commission. Come on up. You and Kellen can trade okay. after okay, if you both do your thing. <laughs> All right, take it away, Mr. Macbeth. Thank you. Uh, thank you, staff, for. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> thank you, staff, for preparation of this budget uh, and the presentation, and thank you, uh, county board members, for consideration of uh, what I'm about to say. Um, so I th let me start by saying that the Housing Commission meets tonight, so we've not had a chance to officially uh, discuss and adopt um, feedback for the county board related to the budget, but we have circulated um, the uh, the comments that I'm about to share tonight. Um, so at least the commissioners are aware and um, have no objection to them. Uh, so I wanted to start by saying that we appreciate the stable funding for the housing grant program as well as permitted supportive housing. Um, I think we're very much looking forward to the recommendations coming out of the housing grant work group um, as was discussed and as you are very well aware that many more residents are housing cost burdened in our community then our current eligibility criteria for housing grants allow to be helped. Um, so we're very much hoping that those recommendations will help us on a path to serve more people with uh, housing grants. Um, we do have a number of concerns about the budget. I think the first is AHIF. Um, so the proposed AHIF levels 
of 9.7 million are half, approximately half of what was approved last year by the board, which was 18.7 million. And while the 9.7 million is adequate to uh, fund the ballooning Barcroft debt service, uh, as well as debt service for um, Buckingham and um, to also pay for things like Crystal House, it doesn't include a lot of upcoming needs that we know that we will have um, in future years. So um, at the current levels, it basically will not fund any future CAF development. Um, and we view that as a problem if we're going to try and meet our affordable housing goals uh, in our community that we've already agreed to as part of the affordable housing master plan. Um, and we know, for instance, that the Serrano um, is going to be coming up soon for either rehabilitation uh, or redevelopment. That's probably going to result in an AHIF request that at current funding levels of 9.7 million, we will not be able to pay for. Um, and I think that's an area, especially as we look at some of the older properties as well, some other developments for CAFs that we know are coming down the pipeline, that we wanna make sure we have enough funding to support those um, in future years and then continuing to invest in AHIF at the levels um, that we saw last year is really critical to ensuring that beyond the existing debt service uh, requirements and the projects that we've already committed to as a community uh, that we're preparing for the other projects that we know are coming and are absolutely necessary and critical to meeting our affordable housing supply goals, um, especially at a time that um, I think was previously discussed as well, construction costs and interest rates are increasing. It's becoming more expensive for uh, affordable housing development and our community partners who are doing that development are going to need more resources and support uh, to be able to produce more CAF units for our community. Um, additionally, uh, we are concerned about the staff capacity um, when it comes to implementation of the long-term strategies for improved oversight and tenant support at aging CAF properties and the commitments that were made last spring, as well as being able to implement the recommendations from the Joint uh, Tenant Landlord Commission and Housing Commission Subcommittee on the Status of Aging Properties, uh, aka the Serrano Report that was issued in October of 2022. Um, as part of that, I think we were happy to see last year a commitment to step up our CAF inspections um, from uh, just a fraction of the total volume of CAFs every year to doing this year 2,000 CAF inspections. Unfortunately, that money is not proposed to continue. Um, and we think that considering the issues that we still hear from residents about aging CAF properties and maintenance concerns, um, and even what we've heard, oops, <laughs> heard today about you know, the, the state of uh, permanent supportive housing uh, units in the county that we need to be vigilant with our housing quality inspections um, at our CAF properties um, and continuing to invest in outside resources because the county doesn't have enough uh, internal staff to, to adequately do those inspections on a yearly basis is very critical. Um, and we also, um, I think this was a theme again with the, the planning uh, division discussion as well, are looking for more resources for the CPHD housing division, whether that includes a deputy director position um, or other positions to ensure that we have enough staff to 
um, follow through on commitments that have already been made, uh, as well as uh, new opportunities to better serve our especially low-income populations in this community and their housing needs. As part of that, um, we would really like the board and the manager to consider um, additional funding for um, establishing regular equity analysis for all housing and planning projects. Um, as was mentioned, I think staff did a really uh, great job on the missing middle housing study of doing a comprehensive equity analysis. That doesn't happen for any of our other planning or housing projects, but it is a critical piece of Arlington's commitment to equity to actually do an analysis and see how our programs impact different races, ethnicities, different uh, populations throughout our community, um, and make sure that that's incorporated into the proposals that we're, we're bringing forward as a, as a community. Um, we would also um, you know, urge the county board um, and the manager to look to the commitments that um, are likely to be made this summer for the regional fair housing plan, um, and that staff has worked very hard with the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments as well as members of the county board to put in place and, and think about the costs um, that will be associated with implementing these very much needed um, fair housing strategies and goals. Um, and as part of that, I know this is kind of outside the realm of CPHD and DHS, but um, within the Office of Human Rights budget, um, there's $50,000 allocated for FY 2024 for a fair housing study, um, which I read as uh, fair housing testing. Um, and that hasn't been done since 2019. Um, it's one of the county's at least draft goals to expand that to include not just um, race and national origin, but also disability. Um, and I know many advocates have urged the county to do testing even beyond those areas because housing discrimination is very real and is a, a major problem as evidenced by uh, the, the really comprehensive um, analysis done in the Regional Fair Housing Plan. Um, so looking at expanding the, uh, the categories um, that are part of the fair housing testing that will be done in 2024, we think is also important for the, the board and the manager to consider. Um, and then again, lastly, just ensuring that um, we're providing adequate funding for the implementation of the county's uh, developing strategic plan to functionally end homelessness um, in the next four years. Um, I think DHS is doing great work in that regard, and I know it's not final yet, but um, looking at anything that can be done in FY 2024 to help put us on the right path and solid footing to achieve that goal um, as it's being outlined or potentially sooner, um, because as we all know, functional ending homelessness is uh, uh, an amazing thing for our community to potentially achieve and anything we can do to invest in that I think is definitely worthwhile. So, thank you. Thank you, Mr. McBeth. And if you wouldn't mind doing a little <laughs> chair change. <coughs> Indeed. <laughs> chair Wimbush, the floor is yours. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Chris Wimbush and I'm the vice chair oh, of the Tenant Landlord Commission. Thank you for the opportunity to comment on the county manager's FY 2024 proposed budget. And I'd like to focus my comments uh, in two areas. 
As the county manager's proposed budget notes, in fiscal year 2023, the board made a one-time funding allocation of $150,000 to enable increased CAF physical inspections, leading to 400 units being brought into compliance. This effort by the housing division should be commended, but it does highlight continued challenges with our CAF properties. With this in mind, I ask the board to consider additional one-time funding to support expan expanded inspections beyond those already planned to ensure aging properties receive adequate attention given continued resident concerns. Second, we know that the COVID-19 pandemic and national economic headwinds have placed an extraordinary strain on Arlington families. We commend the county manager's commitment of $3 million in one-time funding for eviction prevention but as economic headwinds continue, the county board should consider additional one-time funds to ensure we can support those with the greatest need in our community. Finally, I just wanna take a minute to thank and recognize the members of the housing division and DHS for their tireless work on behalf of residents and businesses in the county. It is sometimes easy to forget in the heat of public policy debates and a global public health emergency um, and the daily vagaries of life that county civil servants are like us trying to make this place we live and work in better. And so for that, I say thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Let's not sully those words with our questions. Um, <laughs> so, you know, colleagues, just uh, with the check of time, mindful that we have uh, DHS as well as, uh, I believe, four advisory commission presentations yet to go. If you could sort of prioritize your budget focus questions first, and we'll see how we do before we maybe get into policy-related discussions. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Ms. Crystal. I'm going to try to be uh, very brief, although I just as a flag, I'd be interested in following up with the um, housing and tenant landlord. Both of you mentioned a desire for more resources for inspections or worry about money for inspections going away. And so if we have the opportunity, um, uh, I believe we just got the presentation suggested that housing quality standards was, was adding 100K in housing choice voucher and 100K in local funding for inspections. Is that different than what our two commissions talked about? Our uh, request for 100,000 is for permanent supportive housing units and for housing choice voucher units. So and, can, can and I the question is for housing yeah. grants units. That's the, that's the advocacy is for, for CAF, CAF can, units. Can I, can I speak to that for a second? Because I think this, this one is on me. Yeah. It's hard to believe that I made a mistake, but um, <laughs> when we're putting together the budget, um, at the very end, it's not. This has to do with inspections and from the housing division, not DHS. DHS, we are adding resources there. Um, I've made it clear to Ms. Venezia that um, I will make. You know, we, we left four and a half million dollars unallocated on the table. Okay. I, I would say that when you ask me what my priorities are, okay. that's the first take. I sort of we sort of missed that in the in the cleanup at the very end, okay. and that even if we need more than that, my commitment made last year when we talked about this was that we would do whatever inspection regime that we needed to do to make sure that you know we're addressing that first slide talked about how we barely did any inspections four or five years ago. We're committed to doing as many as we have to do. Okay, excellent. I also would just appreciate if we can figure out some way to, to clarify what we're talking about because our permanent supportive housing units and the units in which people are using housing choice vouchers are all CAFs. They are all CAFs. So I think we, if we can just come up with some yeah. nomenclature, that will help me. Yeah, so you're okay. talking about non-CAFs beyond yes. housing choice That's right. vouchers. There we go. Yes. Yes. Um, 
I think I'm going to follow up in writing just with some questions about that, the, using the TIF balance in Columbia Pike. I want to get a sense of um, what the opportunity cost of that might be. It sounds like we've only ever used the TIF balances on affordable housing projects, but are there other things? This kind of crosses probably Columbia, um, CPHD housing, maybe even a little DES. Sort of what else would we be thinking about using the TIF on? But I can follow up with that. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, Mr. DeFerranti, and then we'll go to this side. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, uh, thank you for the, uh, Kellen, for uh, your, Mr. Macbeth, for your thorough points and detailed, and I may end up looking, watching the video on that. I'm glad you mentioned homelessness. That's a huge project that's underway. Uh, on AHIF, I kind of, Ms. Venezia, I think 12 and a half million is the figure you, I think you mentioned. If you add the, you know, the AHIF related, is that correct? So um, what we're estimating is that the net budget, if you take all sources in the multifamily loan fund, which includes um, for fiscal year 24, we're including the Columbia Pike TIF balances in that, our federal monies, um, our loan repayments, developer contributions, all of the usual sources that we mentioned, in addition to the appropriation that you all may consider when you do your um, budget adoption in April. And so what we did is we took all of those sources, we netted out what the debt service estimates are, uh, both for Barcroft and also for BB3, and then the net budget remaining, we're estimating to be about 12 and a half million. Great, that's helpful. I do, uh, of course, the Serrano is always on my mind, but I also um, mentioned Melwood earlier. There's a pipeline question with respect to AHIF, and so I know we've done one time in the past. I don't know whether we'll have a ton of one time, but I'll follow up on that. And then the last um, place that I'll follow up, I'm, I really appreciate the one-time request. We seem to have more one-time funding, aka deputy director, which is on my mind for next budget year, not this one. Um, but uh, but I, I think there's, in page 722 and 723, I think our CAF inspection success, even with the 400, is still in the 40% range. and. 40% in my algebra eighth grade class was great for me, but you know, for, <laughs> on some tests, but you know, but for, and, and 40, so honestly, 40% may not be bad. I don't know enough about the inspection rates, but I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that at all. Absolutely. So, um, as a commitment that we made through the CAP strategies um, that again were released in April of last year, um, our goal is to inspect 20% of the units that are in our CAF portfolio. Now, when we use those numbers, uh, to Ms. Crystal's point earlier, that would be in addition to any inspections that are done through Anita's programs and her staff. So all in, you know, we are probably getting closer to, I don't know, 25, 30% perhaps mm -hmm. all in. Mm -hmm. um, but again, what we're aiming to do is for, when we isolate the, um, the portfolio that is CAF alone does not have a DHS client in it um, that would be subject to Anita's inspections. We're aiming for 20%. Great. Which and we will achieve this year. Great. That's great on the number inspected, and I'll follow up on the number of success. I'm kind of interested in, you know, the one-time request, and, and if we got 400 done this year, if I think I may have misread, but 41.8% is the amount successful. So in the interest of time, uh, unless you pine to opine on it, I'll follow up on that one just to understand how many of our inspections are successful and what we need to. You're get. talking about after like the number of units that pass initial inspection. Yeah, got it. Okay. Yeah. So I think 
to the chair's point, and if it's okay with you, uh, with all that you do, um, I'll just follow up on that in writing, if that's okay. Thanks. Thank you. Please, no one use the intel about Mr. DeFerranti's algebra scores, his opposition <laughs> research. You know, that might have been TMI, as the kids say. <laughs> I'm but sure that was just for effect. That was just for effect. Um, so I'm going to follow up with Mr. DeFranti's questions a, a little bit more. And I, by the way, I appreciate the briefing earlier today. And I know we're going to, that's, Sam, thank you for everything you're doing. I, and actually, I appreciate Mr. Wingbush's thank you because um, everybody's been working really hard. Um, so to draft down, so if I'm just public looking at this and I see 61% passed inspection and initial move-in, so that means people moved in anyway, even though they didn't pass, right? So do you, if you want to talk about, I mean, what does it mean to not pass? Because the numbers here look like, oh my heavens, what are, you know, are we allowing people to live in, in a terrible conditions? I assume that's not the case. I have no, that's not the case. Many a house no. in an apartment where it needed work before I, you know, after I moved in. So d could you just explain that in case? Sure, sure. What that means basically, you know, in, units are inspected when someone moves in or when they're when their recertification is taking place. Um, we don't let people move into units that are not up to standards. Just means they have to be re-inspected. The landlord has to make modifications to improve the, the specific deficiencies. And, and, and it will Ms. Freeman, if I could, just to yeah. relay that, that could be anything from a structural repair. It could also mean an inoperable uh, Smoke detector, right. which needs a battery. That, that, that has to get, yes, right. right. Thank you, yeah. Right, so the issue is, is that for permanent supportive housing, we don't have dedicated inspectors. Mm -hmm. In Housing Choice Voucher, for the 1,500 households we have, we have two inspectors. For Housing Choice, for uh, permanent supportive housing, we have no inspectors. Our, our, we train our case managers, who are sort of social worker types, to actually do the inspection. Okay. That leads a lot to be desired, right? It leads uh, because they are being inspect trained in, a, in an area that is not their area of expertise. But they'd pick up something really egregious, right? Which yes, is and so thing. when yeah. things are, do not pass inspection, it just delays the ability of a, cl of a client to be able to move into the unit. And, um, you know. Okay. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I was thinking just because other people watch this and they don't see it, you know, you yeah. might have something like 100% meets standards, whatever. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. It just looks, it, 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 this it is just showing you. I don't think is true, and I just wanted to. Right. This is not showing what the outcome is after the reinspection. Yeah. And the, 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 the problems that they find are not huge major things. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Huge major things we don't let them move in. Right? <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. Yes. And to Vice Chair Garvey's point, which is a good point, it might be good at some point to just share it with us um, so we can then share with the community what are the uh, national statistics sure. on passing HUD inspections initially, because I, it's not very high. Um, you know, so it's not like we're standing as no. a particular outlier. No. Thank you. Mr. Carantonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And actually, to your last point, uh, we've seen uh, just across the river what happened uh, a couple of months ago when we found out, <laughs> when they found out, uh, you know, the real the real state of uh, in the DC uh, Housing Authority and the problems that were associated with that, so inspections are really really critical. Uh, having worked myself for a short while on on something very similar, we had a, a kind of a plan on how to inspect, who to prioritize. So it went by the age of the building, you know the. Uh, the last uh, renovation, uh, the last uh, replacement of appliances, etc. So there was a, a list of you know uh, flags 
that we're prioritizing and make a lot more out of this 20%, which is more than 2,000 units, actually. So, uh, uh, and and so I, I would I would ask you if you if you have some stats on that to to show us a little bit the um, the, the the modus operandi there. It would it would be very helpful to have. It would help. Helpful to have this. Uh, definitely the third point, the 53% that's likely to fail in requiring multiple reinspections. So this, this puts an additional yeah. strain to our system. Right? I think, yes, I think the intent of this data was to show you the strain of the the, the workload on the existing case managers. Uh, as I said, I want to associate myself on the discussion about uh, the uh, opportunity costs uh, on the use of TIF to. Uh, you know, uh, pay uh, for the, the lion's share of the uh, debt service on Barcroft uh, this year because this is not going to repeat. This is, this source won't be there. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't you know put it in the same basket like this. This is still a an extra. We we dedicated that money when when uh, when we inst instituted the TIF for. Uh, something like uh, what happened with Barcroft. We wanted to have this uh, TOA funds actually funded with that, which was in intentional. So it's not a, a uh, appropriation out of scope. I understand that, but still has an, uh, it still is a problem for me, and we want to know what we what the what the trade-offs uh, could be. And third, and most importantly, uh, for me right now. Uh, we are seeing a, uh, AMI has been increasing. That means that several households have been uh, depressed into lower AMI uh, uh, brackets. And I, and uh, you know, discussing that with the residents in Barcroft, especially, but also in other places, I've seen that this puts an additional uh, strain to how we have to plan for our, our AHF money. Uh, so, do you anticipate that? Uh, we have enough uh, leverage or enough financial ability to uh, deal with the additional pressure. So we have more 30%, 40%, 50% AMI households, uh, apparently, than we anticipated, which, you know, our target is always 60% AMI, but it seems that we have more uh, underneath, under that, and we don't want to displace anybody, right? I'm happy to respond to um, a few of those questions. So regarding the Columbia Pike TIF, which I actually, I'll, I'll back up for a moment because I think you asked about our inspections and how we prioritize um, which properties we may be um, teeing up for inspection. Our inspections team, our compliance staff um, within the county, they do um, an excellent job. They have a whole spreadsheet triaging um, based on just the factors that you mentioned, not only the age of the property, but the the timing of the most recent renovation. So uh, which properties may, you know, have the greatest needs, whether it be um, capital needs, maintenance needs, that sort of thing. And so they really do prioritize those properties when selecting which may be teed up for the, the 20%. Um, and so, for instance, a project that was newly built a year ago um, likely won't be in that 20% this year. You know, we're going to be looking at properties um, that had their last renovation, you know, several several years earlier. So, um, so there is a prioritization that happens, um, and I think it really does enable us to um, to see the properties that maybe do have the greatest needs and work with those owners, not only on the immediate needs, but really to talk through what are the longer term capital plans uh, for the property. So it opens the conversation. 
So, um, so I think that it really presents a good opportunity for us to, um, to push into those properties and again, see what the needs are. Um, you also had asked about the Columbia Pike TIF and what opportunity costs there may be in using the existing balances as, as well as um, any new revenue um, towards the Barcroft debt service. I will say um, staff back in the fall um, started having those conversations about potentially using those balances for Barcroft. Um, Barcroft is exactly the type of project um, that really was envisioned um, for using this source of funds. And so um, we thought that it actually is, is a really good, again, opportunity to apply this funding source um, to the very project that it was envisioned to help support. Um, and so we, you know, when the county manager made that, that proposal to use those balances for the Barcroft debt in fiscal year 24, um, we, we think that's very consistent with what staff was envisioning. And as you mentioned, for the existing balances, once those are used, they, they won't replenish necessarily, but through new revenue. Uh, but we do anticipate that, that ongoing ability for the new revenue, um, which will be somewhere between 1.4 and 1.7 million over the next few years, that that could continue to be a source um, for this debt service. And your last question, which was a little more complicated, I may lean on Anita as well for the last one, but in terms of how are we continuing to serve households that, um, that are at lower um, uh, AMI levels, so they have greater affordability needs. It's a very challenging problem. Um, I will lean on some of the messaging that we shared during the presentation, which is that it really is a combination of trying to bring in on the capital side um, units that are affordable as, as deeply as we can afford to make them. Um, and I know that some of what we're considering when we're looking at the long-term plan at the Barcroft, for instance, how can we, and also for Crystal House I'll offer, you know, how can we try to go as deep as we can on the capital side to take a little pressure off of Anita and, and her budgets? Um, the programs that Anita's staff provide, though, do help fill some of those gaps. Um, and so I think we're just going to have to continue the, that conversation. And Anita, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, but it, but it is a challenge. Well, I think that as long as I've been doing these budget presentations, that's always been the question. How do we deepen affordability? And, you know, do we invest a dollar in AHIF or a dollar in, uh, you know, that was the old question from, I think, Jay Fassett, or, right? Um, or in housing grants. And the, Really, we need both mm -hmm. because it's not possible to buy down, I think, the affordability as deeply as 30% for most of the time in these in the units, and so we have to supplement it through the grants. Yeah. To close us out on this conversation, I'll make a slight editorial point. I think that's what one of the hopes and promises for Barcroft as we develop that partnership is to see if we can do a better job at creating on the capital side some of those deeper levels of subsidy so it reduces the pressure on other um, programs like housing grants, not so that we can spend less money on them, but we can ensure that we are meeting the greater needs of the community. So thank you all for that. I'm unfortunately going to cut this short, even though I know that as a policy interest, we could go on for a long time and um, prepare for the Department of Human Services conversation. So, Mr. Chair, while uh, Anita is getting ready, I uh, wanted to take the opportunity just to make a few remarks. I don't do it often during budget work sessions. Um, I hope you're listening, Anita. 
um, you're going to hear from Anita um, whether it's eviction prevention, substance use, mental health, child care, housing grants, public health, child protective services, developmental disability services. The day-to-day -day core work of the Department of Human Ser Services has grown and become more complex. And these are the core services to our community. And I, I will say that every turn, these services respond directly to the question of who benefits, who's burden, and how do we know. And so my budget reflects those priorities. You're gonna hear from Anita. We're actually making additions to her budget. Um, it is a statement of my priority, and I think her priority. Um, we've talked a lot about budget reductions. There aren't, there's, I think there's one in your department, but that has to do with you know, no, not needing funds for services that are no longer being asked for. Um, and the other thing is, I wanted to compliment the Department of Human Services for being able to quickly respond to what we've seen in the last six weeks, uh, addressing what's going on in our community with youth mental health. And I'm gonna steal your thunder, Anita. The Crisis Intervention Center is gonna open this month. Yay! Wow. And, um, you know, I'll just say this for Anita and her team. They do all this while they're trying to recruit social workers and deal with clients, and uh, sh she perseveres. <laughs> I'm still here because of Mark. Anyway, um, and I love Arlington, but um, thank you uh, uh, once again for allowing us to present to you our DHS budget. I'm joined today by my colleague, Deborah Warren. You all know her. She's the deputy director of the Department of Human Services. We only have one deputy director, and she occupies the position of the CSB executive director. Now, how she does that is a miracle. We are also joined by Glenda Pittman, who is the Finance and Information Systems Division Director, and our much revered Finance and Management Bureau Director, Corey Travis. Um, on the phone, we have um, Maimuna Ba-Duckingfield, Aging and Disability Services Division Director, Carol Layer, our new Behavioral Health Division Director, uh, Tabitha Kelly is on vacation. She's our Child and Family Services Div Division Director. So is Brooke Hammond Paris on vacation. Economic Independence. And in the back, our esteemed Dr. Ruben Varghese from Public Health, who led us through the COVID pandemic. And we're here on the other side, so hopefully. Okay, so our, our um, department, as Mark mentioned, is vast. We provide human services from prenatal to the end of life to 50,000 residents through over 100 programs. We operate through five customer-facing service divisions and then the director's office, which has some of the uh, backbone uh, services. In 2022, uh, our DHS leadership and staff made a decision to modify our vision, mission, values to center race. You can see them up there, um, the vision and mission, because um, the reason we lead with race is because we are involved in many different systems like health, education, housing, employment, uh, all of which, if you look at outcomes um, for black, indigenous, and people of color, 
tend to be worse than their white counterparts. And so um, we believe that by uh, partnering with the BIPOC community, we can create more equitable access to our resources, and we will intentionally remove uh, barriers um, that we perceive are elements of systemic racism. We're very committed to this uh, vision, mission, values, and let me go on to what we're doing in more detail. Next slide. So I think you all know, um, we've, I've mentioned this before, but we have a very, very robust uh, staff team called REAP, Racial uh, Equity Advancement Partners. There's about 40 staff from all levels of DHS who are champions and advocates for racial justice and model anti-racist behaviors. We have three subcommittees. One is capacity building, developing a facility and training for staff. One is called culturally and racially responsive practices, where they've developed self-assessment tools for programs to examine their responsiveness to equity in their work. And another, it's communications and community engagement, which pr provides a, a newsletter and socializes information. Two really amazing highlights for me for this year that I want you to know about. We're undergoing a SWOT analysis. And you remember the training from Bird Guess, and he introduced that SWOT analysis tool. So we uh, took that, and then our culturally and racially responsive committee modified based on our values, adding specific questions for the areas of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And we are examining uh, four domains in our department, employment, you know, how we hire and retain people, finance and procurement, how we budget, how we procure our services through uh, external contractors, how we deliver services, and how we engage with the community. And we're doing an intentional SWOT analysis with the DHS leadership team, then each division is doing it with their leadership team, and. Um, basically so on and so on, and we are going to call all this information, and we actually have a person who does this, collects 400, 500 comments, I'll have to show it to you in greater detail, summarizes it by category, uh, prioritizes it, we have been voting on what our, our priorities will be, and it's gonna be all mapped out in a strategic plan um, for action to be implemented in the next three years. We also have taken all of our performance, well, 87% of our performance measurement data is now disaggregated by race and ethnicity. So all those performance measurement plans that are linked to the budget, you can find them there. So that's exciting work, and now I'm going to move on to DHS initiatives, of which we have many. Deborah Warren's gonna talk to you about how we've responded to the mental health crisis and we still are. Thank you and good afternoon, County Board members and Manager Schwartz. It has been a very busy year focusing on crisis services, on enhancing what we currently have and developing new um, initiatives. And yes, the Crisis Intervention Center, it's very exciting. I wanted to share with you um, what, what we've done to get to where we are today. We have done a tremendous amount of work under the leadership of Carol Layer, the Behavioral Health Division Director, and Arnisha Moody, the Bureau Director, 
um, to, um, first of all, to, uh, we just received word that we have our license for 23-hour crisis stabilization. This is a really big deal because they changed the standards. They made them way more rigorous. Now, they do require 24-7 <laughs> nursing coverage, and we are still working on the nursing coverage um, through a variety of strategies. We're going to be offering bonuses to nurses that are in DHS um, to uh, provide coverage for um, vacant shifts, um, much as we're doing with our emergency services where we have a number of vacancies um, and offering bonuses um, to do that. We're trying to get temps. We still have positions that um, need to be filled, nursing positions that need to be filled. But currently, you should know that we have 10 to 15 walk-ins every single week, especially on the weekends. It's really crowded and requires a deep cleaning on, on Monday. Um, and really exciting, we hired a behavioral health manager for the Crisis Intervention Center, so it will be organized and the 19 staff will be, will be um, carefully managed and a nurse practitioner, which is very exciting because she is interested in having the CIC be a practicum site so that we can then generate a pipeline of nursing and, and future nurse practitioners. Um, and we have trained all of our staff to distribute naloxone, and that's really important because just a couple of weeks ago, we saved an individual's life who actually was in a tree outside the CIC and got him down, and we, he had overdosed, in, and, uh, and we were able to bring our training into bear. Um, the other exciting thing that is being um, watched by the entire state is the special conservators of the peace aspect of the crisis intervention center. So we do have round-the-clock uh, security um, guards, um, but we have worked um, with the support of Corey, actually, on a contract with a vendor um, to hire individuals who have been trained through the Department of Criminal Justice to be the special conservators of the peace, and because that's kind of a long phrase, we call them S-COPs for short, but um, they go through a rigorous process of certification that involves the police chief, um, uh, the court, Commonwealth Attorney's Office, um, and as a result, once they are certified, they can accept um, an um, uh, individual under an emergency custody order. Um, so this is a really big deal. An emergency custody order, um, if for those of you who don't know, is um, where is generally issued by a magistrate, and it allows police to take custody of an individual for a mental health evaluation uh, for up to eight hours. Um, so this way, with the certified S-COPs, um, the police can uh, transfer custody to these individuals and leave. And we can do our evaluation. These individuals can also transfer these folks if they need to go to the hospital or, you know, if they're detained, that kind of thing. So, um, so that's, that's a huge, it was a very complicated process to work through protocols and hire. We have 10 S-COPs and a supervisor already hired, and seven of them have been certified. So this is huge progress. Um, so we also, the other piece about the CIC is we're working with um, 
the fire police uh, medical director around EMS support for medical clearance and have been working through those protocols. So that's really good. On the negative side, our emergency services has a number of vacancies, which is really limiting our ability to provide mobile crisis response, co-responder service with, in partnership with the police and our emergency, um, the ECC um, coverage. So that is something we are working on some strategies to address that. Our most, our, our uh, mobile outreach services team, funded with an earmark, we have hired one individual and we have to hire a therapist for that team, and we are retrofitting a van, but we plan to do a phased approach and roll that service out very shortly um, once the peer is on board and oriented. Um, so that's exciting, and we also hired a crisis intervention trainer, a, training coordinator, so we've started training our law enforcement partners on how to manage behavioral health crises. Um, and we hired a Marcus Alert coordinator who is kicking off that work in terms of working on the protocols for the levels of um, response for individuals in crisis. And then we have some significant regional efforts in terms of our call center where calls have to 988 have skyrocketed since last July. And we expanded our CR2, which is our community crisis regional response, um, to 24-7. The whole lifespan used to be just kids and um, increased our staffing there. So that provides mobile crisis services in the community. Thank you, Deborah. Um, switching to another topic. So you can, um, you can see the vast array of efforts to, that are being put in place and that we have worked on, Deborah has worked on tirelessly over the last uh, year, well, getting on two years now. Um, I don't know if you're aware of what's happening with Medicaid, but it's big and a lot of work, okay? Uh, Medicaid unwinding. So during the COVID public health emergency, uh, we were not allowed to review Medicaid eligibility cases or close any, unless a person moved away to another jurisdiction. Our numbers went from 18,000 and some odd in 2019 to 28,597 in 2022, a 52% increase. Federal emergency is over, guess what? They want to unwind, that's what they call it, unwind all of those cases. Each and every case has to be re-reviewed for eligibility. Um, that has started this month. We have until April 2024 to complete it. We do not have sufficient staff. The staff that we already have is already burnt out because the caseloads have gone up. Um, we have high turnover in the, in the uh, eligibility staff because we're competing with neighboring jurisdictions that are offering more competitive salaries or better, better, closer work. So we're hiring on former employees, temps, offering overtime, um, and um, working on that, um, along with the fact that our SNAP caseload also went up during the uh, pandemic from 
by 85% uh, in terms of applications from 2,300 to 4,299, and participation went up by 54%. Also, due to the closure of the, or the end of the uh, pandemic, this month, every SNAP recipient will lose $82 a month um, due to the, um, you know, rolling back of the, of the um, expanded benefits. Child care subsidy enrollment has gone up. That's a good thing, uh, but it's uh, by 133%. TANF has gone up by 181%. Uh, so we are facing, uh, you know, a, basically a tsunami <laughs> in the Public Assistance Bureau. Um, and um, that's, I wanted to let you know, it's, it's a lot of work. And it's gonna cost money to hire all those temps, so. Um, go ahead, Deborah. All right, um, with regard to developmental disabilities, um, thanks to your generosity, we have a number of projects that are coming to fruition. One is our 1212 Irving Street will be, it's been completely rebuilt to meet the needs of okay. very high acuity uh, individuals um, with developmental disabilities. It's going to be finished in four weeks and we will be having an open house in June. We'll invite you all. Uh, we did a request for a proposal for uh, the provider to operate the home. That closed yesterday, so we've got progress there. We're very excited about that, and I think it'll really be a model. Um, we, are, we have a lot of pressure with individuals graduating um, from the APS system who um, need either day support or supported employment. And some individuals are not quite ready for employment when they come out of school. So to that end, we are establishing a community-based employment readiness program right at Sequoia Plaza, right on our floor, where our old lab used to be. We're taking that space, renovating it, and um, that will enable us to have 15 additional spots for those individuals. And it's, it's really in line with best practice because it's community-based. And our goal for opening that is July 1. Um, and we are prioritizing the grads, you know, coming out of school uh, right now. Uh, let's see, uh, Woodmont, which is our day one of our day support programs, has 30 clients currently, and we are expanding capacity for an additional uh, 15 clients. Again, that will be more of a community-based service, so there'll be space um, for them. And of course, we've added a sensory room, which is very exciting. Um, and then we are doing long-term planning for an additional day support program in Arlington. This came out of our PCG study, consultant study that we told you about last year. It was one of their recommendations, and uh, we've narrowed down to a couple of possibilities. And then finally, it's DD Awareness Month, so go to Westover Library and check out the artwork done by, um, by our clients. Okay. We're on to ARI, Arlington Addiction Recovery Initiative. We're very proud of ARI. ARI is almost six years old. It'll be six years old this spring. Um, and um, we're very proud to 
announced, if you haven't seen it, that Ari was featured on the CBS Evening News uh, nationally to, for their efforts on ensuring access to naloxone. So we are a national model. Um, and they were also featured in Slate Magazine and, of course, Arl Now. Um, this cross-county, community-wide effort distributed almost 2,000 boxes of naloxone, which um, uh, helps individuals who have overdosed, um, and it's life-saving, um, in 2022. And since July this year, we have already distributed 3,000 boxes of naloxone. Our goal is that every individual in Arlington get trained on how to administer Narcan because you never know when you might come across somebody who has overdosed. It's free training and it's online. Check the website. We are also very excited that um, we have opioid emergency boxes similar to the AED boxes that you see uh, at all our libraries at Marymount University campus, our own campus, and just this week at the um, all APS high schools in the Career Center. And the middle schools are next. So that's a great partnership that we've established with APS in the midst of this crisis. I think we're meeting with APS just about every day on something related to that. Um, I do want to highlight um, that last year we had 87 overdoses. 17 of them were fatal. Um, this year, the, but we did know, note that we had a 41% decrease in fatalities, and that is a direct result of our harm reduction efforts with the distribution of Narcan. However, last year, 10% of the overdoses were 18 and younger. So far this year, we've seen 50% of the overdoses are 18 and younger. So that is our top priority right there. Thank you, Deborah. I'm sorry we're rushing, but, uh, you know, we have a lot of material. Given the hour, it's appropriate. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Food security. Not to be forgotten. Uh, started under Matt DeFerranti's chairpersonship. And um, you remember we had a, a heightened food insecurity during COVID. We decided, uh, and the manager supported it, and you've supported the hiring of a coordinator who's been in place now two years. We did an extensive study with Urban Institute. We developed the first ever Arlington Food Security Strategic Plan, which was published last fall, and then recruited a new coalition of food security members that has 60 active members, including a lot of community uh, folks with lived experience. Um, in the budget, you will see a request for $150,000 NOFA for mini-grants for food security to be directly applied to the priorities in the strategic plan uh, where we hope to expand access to food uh, in different time frames that people need it, different culturally appropriate foods, um, and lay the groundwork to make more systemic change around food policy. We also have an, a VISTA volunteer who's coming to be a um, food security um, member with us this year. Eviction prevention, uh, we've already discussed. I don't think we need to go through that. 
Let's go to family preservation and support. Well, just briefly, this is our child welfare uh, effort to um, really work with families to prevent children from going into foster care. We've increased our in-home and prevention services by 41%. Uh, and um, we see the numbers. So today we only have 58 children in foster care compared to five years ago. So we've uh, cut that in half, which is really important because it's better for children, obviously, to grow up with their families, and that's what they want. Um, and then we have, you know, we're always developing new programs. In the last year, we developed our first episode psychosis program, which is staffed up and running, serving 15 clients. Um, really important to intervene early. Um, we just also developed our RAF dementia services. Now, this is a regional program that we manage, um, and it's um, the result of an $870,000 grant from the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. We've hired five employees for this project and ramped it up in October. This just, by the way, just started July 1, so this is a big deal. And we're making great strides in education and training. The idea of this project is to support uh, families who are caring for their loved ones with dementia at home to prevent them from going into nursing homes. Okay, next slide. So those are a few of our, uh, few of our initiatives and accomplishments. Um, we thought we'd take a moment just to address opioids specifically, opioids and substance use specifically. These are ideas that are, and, and um, potential programs that we have really come up with in the last- Three weeks. Three weeks, yeah. Um, in response to the, the surge in the adolescent um, opioid problem. Um, so Deborah, will, and these are not fully uh, vetted, but they are strong ideas with potential budget requests attached to them. It's not part of the existing FY24 budget. And if it's okay with you, why don't we just, you know, have this displayed for a minute, let's chew on it, but let's not uh, send conflicting signals to the community that these are in-place programs or in-place commitments since right. they're still being baked? They're still being baked, exactly. Do you want us to go through after you review or just sort of high just level. pass over? High, high level. Okay. High level. High level. Uh, we have an opportunity for um, to add a behavioral health therapist through the Opioid Abatement Authority Fund. This is, this is an actual... That's right. an actual. That's an actual, That's an actual funded uh, position through Opioid uh, Abatement Authority. And one of the things we want to do with that position, it enables us to double our existing OBOT treatment, office-based um, opioid treatment from 20 to 40 individuals. And we would be able to provide medication-assisted treatment to youth 16 and older. You're not allowed to do it federally under 16. Um, and also get a contractor, $45,000 for a contractor, to really ensure that we are implementing best practices and give us feedback. Um, and then uh, sort of the high level, what we are considering is we're, we're uh, talking about the possibility with the school system of having locally funded behavioral health therapists provide treatment actually in the schools. And 
one other piece is um, we are working regionally with the other community services boards on um, developing a, resi a medical withdrawal and residential program for, with the top priority being adolescents. We want to develop a 22-bed uh, program uh, for youth who have opioid dependence. We also are working on one for adults. We've developed that RFP. It's going out. Um, and we also applied for uh, a grant with the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services to support uh, those programs. So hopefully substantial good news to share at a future time in yes. terms of future time. Yes. Yeah, okay. Next slide. We're moving right along. Okay, these are our budget highlights, but we already discussed the South Irving Group Home, so we don't need to do that. We don't need to discuss food security grants. I do want to bring to your attention something that you may not know about called class. Uh, Along, another unfunded, another unfunded state mandate, along with the unwinding. Um, Virginia Quality Birth Through Five is the name of the Virginia's quality initiative for childcare. They've now renamed it, rebranded it, and added a new component because it wasn't enough. Um, the, you know, we have a small and mighty team of four people who inspect um, our 193 licensed programs, right? And they do two inspections per year, that's 386 inspections, okay? Under this class, Virginia Quality Birth Through Five, it is now being required to do two observations of each classroom mm. within each center, right? So you could have 10 classrooms in the center, you could have five, right? two per year, uh, that's an additional 244 observations. So there's gonna be a total of 630 visits. Um, of, so we are requesting, and the manager has uh, said we should move forward with your, the request to you for an additional childcare specialist to do this work because uh, can't be done without it. It's just not enough time in the day. That's what that is about, food security. Let's go to the next slide. I'm sorry I'm rushing, but I, I feel compelled to. You're missing your kid's birthday dinner? No, that's not good. Now I'm gonna feel guilty. Let's keep it going. And then okay, all right. Um, I just want you to know, you know, the manager discussed in the beginning how much work we have taken on. This is the graph that represents the growth of our department, okay? Um, we have exponentially grown over the past five years in response to the burgeoning critical needs of the community. It was the pandemic, the eviction prevention, the housing affordability, the behavioral health care, the opioid epidemic, homelessness, the Marcus Alert, the food security, the child care initiative. It's a lot, okay? And we keep on adding FTEs, for which we're very grateful, and the resources that we're getting, you know, you can see there's a basically 32% growth in our expenditures over the last five years. Of course, we do generate a, a, quite a bit of revenue, 23% over the last five years. Um, but the FTEs that we add are for direct services. 
right? We had a therapist, we had a childcare licensor, we had a landlord engagement. We have not added commensurately the backbone help that is needed to make our department sustainable. And let me just tell you some fun facts. The current organizational structure that we have was created by Ron Carley in 1998, okay, 25 years ago. Uh, it was great and it's held out, but we're not the same agency 25 years later. Um, and so we also have, I have the exact same staffing in the, in the director's office that I had when Suzanne Eisner left. Okay, that was seven years ago, okay? So it's not tenable for the future sustainability and for succession planning, as you can see, um, we are looking at the, <laughs> our plans, uh, we want to be able to leave the department in good shape with a strategic plan, a solid strategic plan, with an organizational structure that can last the next 25 years, uh, God willing. And so we're we're, we're going to do some reorganization, we're going to do some reallocation internally. Um, uh, public health is reorganizing based on its, its um, reflections during the pandemic, and we're going to be discussing with the manager and the human resources department how we can uh, move forward with this, right? Okay, so you'll hear more about that. Next, we don't wanna miss the cake from the, okay. <laughs> Vacancy rates, all right, this is our current uh, highlights of some of our current pain points in vacancies, okay? Because you need people to deliver services. You don't have the people, you can't deliver the service. Okay, so we have about 844 current positions allocated, okay, even that's because we have these bits and pieces of FTEs. We have a relatively low, I think, vacancy rate, 11% is not too bad. But you can see in certain areas, it's very high. Nurse practitioners, 50%. Behavioral health therapists, overall 22%. In child and family services, where we have all those opioid issues, 37% vacancy. Emergency services clinicians, still 21%, even though we are begging people and rewarding them to take these overnight shifts and shifts that are uncovered. Public assistance benefits workers, remember the Medicaid unwinding? 59% turnover resigned in the last two and a half years, okay? And so that's a problem because when you have new staff and they're not trained up, you have inaccuracies. Your accuracy rate starts going down and uh, that brings attention from the, you know, external parties. So we have to, really think strategically, and we will be doing this, Michelle and Mark are, are, are supportive and uh, with human resources, how we can more, we can build in more, uh, better kinds of packages of incentives, differential pay, you know, we pay the same level of, of um, salary to someone who is in an office-based clinical position as someone who's in the jail. And they're dealing with, you know, people who are incarcerated. We're, we have no different pay differential for emergency services, even though they're working like all hours of the night. So we have to start looking at this very critically so that we can really incentivize. Otherwise, we will have 
wait list, which we already have in Children and Family Services and are very likely to have in adult services. So that's my, uh, my plea. Next slide. Anything else that we're adding? Oh, this is our proposed changes, our budget changes. We're, we have an increase of 6% overall, $183 million. That's a lot of money. I feel tremendous responsibility shouldering this. Um, we have an increase of 21 FTEs. However, 15.25 um, of those are grant funded. Um, and one is funded with the opioid abatement F funds and 5.85 are net tax support, but one of them are, is reallocated within our department. Next. These are the details of the proposed changes. The only one here I will point out is we are requesting a quality assurance manager for EID. We don't have anyone devoted to quality assurance in a division that is $43 million worth of funding and has programs like housing, employment, and all these safety nets. We need someone dedicated to quality, to data and timeliness and accuracy of our data. Um, and the security coordinator is something that you had approved before. We're still recruiting that. It's so that we can have appropriate oversight of the SCOPs and all the other kinds of um, um, security issues that occur on our campus. Next slide. I'm not going to go through all these. Conservatives of the peace contract is expensive. $941,000. That's a lot of money. Um, and then, of course, and I, we mentioned the expansion of the DD programs. The DD residential services match. You want to talk about that, Deborah? That is because uh, DMAS um, raised the rates, uh, the Medicaid rates for residential services to ensure that there were adequate caregivers. And so we have to match that rate for our individuals who are in group homes who are locally funded. Next slide. We've already discussed this, food security, eviction prevention. Next slide. Job Avenue. Go ahead, Deborah. There we go. Job Avenue is our uh, contracted supported employment and education